Hey, what's going on? This is the Saturday Down South podcast. I am Conor O'Kara. Will, have we settled down from the Saban Jimbo beef, or are we still kind of cranked up to 11? Jimbo still seems like he's cranked <laughs> up to 11, but have we collectively as a podcast settled down? Yeah, I think that, you know, slander is eternal. There's no beginning, middle, or end, but my volume has kind of come down. I think I'm not as hype about it, but, you know, the jokes will keep flying. Thank you for everybody who listened to our emergency pod at the end of last week. We had record-setting numbers, not surprisingly. Yeah. I think a lot of people were uh, very eager to get back into the college football world. If maybe you're one of those people that just listens during the season or whatever the case, uh, yeah, numbers were really, really strong mm-hmm. for that, not surprisingly. Um, we have a great show lined up today. We've got Ari Wasserman from The Athletic coming on in a, in a little bit here to dig into just a bunch of different things, talk about NIL and recruiting, Brian Kelly, um, some Ohio State things as well. A very infamous tweet he had. Um, we go all over the place. A great interview, so stick around for that. We're also going to talk grudges and figuring it out because last I checked, there was a pretty famous grudge uh, that a lot of people were talking about, college football world. So um, speaking of that, there were some pretty bad takes from the Jimbo oh, yeah, beef. Most, I would argue. <laughs> yeah, a lot, a lot. Uh, so I just wanted to clean up a little bit of some of this. Um, one of the bad takes I saw that Saban is anti-NIL. Mm-hmm. Um, that's, a, that's a tough thing to sell to me when he is like, preached uh, and literally said the words i am pro nil um like in that seven minute answer and he is bragged about you know bryce young seven figures before he starts his first game in alabama all these different things he talked about the collective that alabama had during that seven minute answer whatever the case saban is not anti-nil if saban was anti-nil i can promise you he would not have signed the number two recruiting class in the country just would not have happened if you do um, want to stand here for someone about that though Dabo is still fair game <laughs> Dabo. Dabo more fair game than Saban. I, I think we can agree on that. Mm-hmm. At least I would hope so. The other really bad take, Jimbo Fisher hasn't done anything yet, so he really can't talk. I'll say this. Will, we are critical of Jimbo Fisher. Yes, That's we fair, sure are. Right? We are. Um, look, we, we make fun of the, the fake national championship plaque. There, there are a lot of references to Jimbo being eight and four. We've talked about the, the tweets comparing him to Kevin Sumlin, all those different things. Mm-hmm. And I, I think Jimbo is overrated as an offensive mind. But I'll say this in defense of that bad take. The guy beat Saban, so mm-hmm. he's coming off a year in which he did that. And it's not that he's done nothing at Texas A&M because in 2020, of course, best AP finish that the program's had since 1939 that has to count for something. Does have a ring, last I checked. Even though it didn't happen in the playoff era, that does still count in my book. It's, but look, man, it was about against this. an SEC team. Uh, we are James yes. We are James Winston appreciators. I think that was a fair ring. I'll say it. I'm, uh, I don't know that I'd call myself a Jameis appreciator. Uh, I am entertained by Jimbo. Or Listen, by, if by the Jameis. Bears signed Jameis tomorrow, you would be ecstatic. Well, before Stop. Justin Fields. Before Justin Fields. Let me preface that. Stop it. I would not. <laughs> the, the thing, though, that I think is kind of lost in the shuffle of this is that if you're one of these people saying that Jimbo hasn't done anything, Jimbo has convinced people to essentially write him blank checks to go win championships. Mm -hmm. I don't think that list is as long as we really realize. And Jimbo has blank checks to be able to go out and do whatever he needs from a staff standpoint, from being able to get the best facilities, from recruiting, that's not necessarily talking about NIL and paying players up front, Mm -hmm. but just being able to actually spend on traveling to be able to recruit and do all these different things. all of, all of those things, I think, would suggest that Jimbo 
at least has the right to be able to speak up and defend himself if somebody is going to outwardly accuse him of buying his players and doing so without proof. Um, the other thing, the other lazy take, so I saw this, the college game has passed Saban by. <laughs> Buddy, if you want to play the flag in that take, it's not going to go well for you, all right? I'm just like, did, did these people not realize that, that Saban has been to a national championship six of the last seven years? That's just not important. That detail doesn't matter. I, I don't know. Whatever, he's on the wrong side of 70, so I guess some people are just going to run with whatever narrative they want. But if, if you're going to make a point about this, at least kind of have a clue. I felt like a lot of people did not have a clue. Um, we didn't hit on this in the emergency pod, but something I thought about a lot ever since um, Will brought this up when we were texting on Thursday night is the fundamental problem with Saban using Jackson State to try and prove his point that NIL needs fixing. Mm -hmm. Will, I've got some thoughts on this, and I know you do too. Do you want to? Do you want to go first? Yeah, um, I'll just say like basically what I told you is like, hey man, like given the history of college football. Um, given kind of how things were, you know, if you go back and look at some of those teams in the 50s and 60s, and you look at the players that are coming out of great institutions like Grambling and, and these great HBCUs going to the NFL draft, and my example is always a guy like Buck Buchanan, who was like this 6'8 guy who was unblockable, went first overall in the NFL draft. And you look at, you know, some of those SEC teams that claimed national championships back then, and I always say, who would block Buck Buchanan on this team? So I think that. You know, the SEC and college football at large has always been kind of set up to be big brother to the HBCUs in ways that have been really unfair. And I think that if you look at the salaries, if you look at the budgets, you know, there was no reason to go after an HBCU and to go after Dion. And I'll say it, you know, hand up whenever Dion took that job. I'm sure a lot of us were skeptical. Okay, is Dion just going to be an about me thing? Is this going to be all? Because Dion has had some missteps in the past. I'm not saying he's a perfect messenger at all. Um, but I think at the end of the day, you know, they play on like C-SPAN, man. Like to say that Number one, that is a threat to you. And then number two, that you feel more qualified to, do you feel qualified to speak on this young man's college decision because he didn't pick, you know, A&M or Ohio State or one of these blue bloods that you're familiar with. I think it's a little bit, I think it's a little bit tough, you know what I'm saying? Especially in Alabama, I will give them credit, has a pretty good history, you know, of integrating the SEC. Um, Bear Bryant famously was very sure. pro-integration. And like, so it's not like a, this is an Alabama, you know, slander thing. I think that they have a very good record, uh, especially among SEC schools and that type of thing. And so I, there's no reason to punch down on a school like that, even if you don't like Dion, even if you don't like whatever, because at the end of the day, any kid picking a school like Jackson State over in Ohio State and A&M and LSU is him taking a chance and it's deeper than just football. It's him believing in you know that institution and that head coach. And I think that it's too early to tell what that's going to be. But who are you to say that his priorities are incorrect or that he's being scammed? Is all I, is all I have to say about that. Especially without proof. Yep. That's that's the thing that I keep coming back to with with why this felt a little bit different than that that Saban went in that direction. Everybody always says he's so calculated. This didn't. This felt too loose. It didn't feel calculated enough, in right. my opinion. Five days earlier, Saban went on Fine Palm and referenced how he wants to get back to having parody in college football, something <laughs> that we've had fun talking about. Yes, and that that was the sign, the, the kind of the the soundbite that was taken from that that appearance. He, he referenced parody in in his opinion was scholarships, academic support, and healthcare were all the same in college athletics in the pre-NIL era. And now with the way that deals are being set up, that's getting out of whack and all these different things, and there's not that parity. And that's just fundamentally untrue at the right. HBCU level. Um, state funding has long been a huge barrier. The Association of Public and Land-Grant Universities reported that from 2010 to 2012, more than half of the nation's HBCUs did not get their full funding. 
like you can get full federal government funding and then be hung out to dry by your own state lawmakers mm -hmm. to get that like the $50 million, whatever it is, tens of millions of dollars that you're coming up short with as an HBCU because you are not prioritized in that way. CBS News had the story about Tennessee State, which is where Eddie George is now the coach, team that mm -hmm. faced Mississippi State last year. Uh, it had been underfunded by $544 million dating back to 1950. If you don't think that's impacted athletics with things like recruiting and what they're capable of doing, you're out of your mind. Like mm -hmm. if you're sitting here still telling yourself Tennessee State has the same sort of parity and resources as in Alabama, that's just factually untrue. So I say this not to be like, oh, Nick Saban is this white elitist who doesn't understand anything about HBCUs. That's not my point at all. I mean, like in addition to, to Saban doing those Aflac commercials with Dion and having a better understanding, and there were HBCU, that was like one of the reasons he was doing that was to bring awareness to HBCUs. Mm -hmm. like, Saban tried to hire Howard coach Larry Scott last year, mm -hmm. but he turned it down. One of the few people that turned down Nick Saban. <laughs> He's got a grudge um, against HBCU. He definitely does. <laughs> yeah, it was weird though. Like the timing of it was, the timing of it was, uh, it was bef it was early in 2021, and because they were in HBCU, they hadn't even played a game yet. So he's like trying to he's like trying to hire him before he's ever coached a game, and they were going to play spring football. So that's just like a weird situation there. So I'm not, you know, we don't need to get into the details of that, but. I think this just comes back to this basic point. Coaches get so entrenched into their own world sometimes that they lose sight of reality. Like mm -hmm. Saban hears all of those people saying that Dion paid a million dollars for Travis Hunter, even though none of that has actually been proven. And Saban runs with it because he's trying to show that people are using NIL in the wrong way. You can tell me tomorrow though that Jackson State paid $10 million of booster funded money to get Travis Hunter. And I would just say, you know what, more power to you. Right. Because in a weird way, like this, this is gonna sound messed up and I, I know what I'm saying here, I, I promise, I know what I'm saying. Oh boy. Racism in the recruiting process dying down over the last couple decades, that has actually hurt the HBCUs. Think about this, like we're, we're not seeing guys like Steve McNair, Walter Payton, Jerry Rice fall through the cracks and go to HBCUs yeah. anymore. Like yeah. that's that's not quite where it once was, where, you know, obviously like as we talk about, and this doesn't need to get into a, like a, a really in-depth conversation about HBCUs. There are a lot of people who are way more qualified to talk about those specific areas and the rise of them and some of the issues that they've had within those specific institutions over the last few years. But like why this is relevant is because like, the number one overall recruit doing this is the outlier, and it does right. stand out in such a unique way. And really quick so on like, that, I just want to like say something that I didn't get to. I'm not even saying that they didn't do that. I just want to be clear. It's not that- Nor am I. Yeah, yes. right. Like, we just want to preface that by saying that might very well be the case. However, it's the case everywhere else as well. And Old Boy did not bring up those other places. He specifically picked um, Jackson State, which I think, as you're probably about to say, is like, good for them for finding a million dollars. Yeah. <laughs> like, honestly. <laughs> I mean, and, and that's like, as we outlined a few months ago, we talked about the Travis Hunter thing and we asked the question, you know, did Dion just change the game? I don't think that was a, a really typical situation mm -hmm. because all the things that Dion has working in his, in his favor that HBU, HBCU coaches don't. So I don't necessarily think that we're all of a sudden gonna start to see this happen. That, that's not to say I'm trying to diminish the impact that Dion has had and he's gonna continue to recruit really well and all those different things. But like to me, it was just an unfair thing for Saban to say. Like in 2014, USA Today reported that Mississippi Valley State had a yearly athletic budget of $3.6 million. That was half as much as Saban's annual salary. And by the way, Alabama's athletic budget, 
100 million bucks, okay? <laughs> so like Saban talking about academic support being equal also falls flat when you realize that places like Alabama are loaded with dozens of tutors whose job it is to strictly keep players eligible while you have seasons at like HBCU conferences like the SWAC. They, they couldn't even, they had half of their, their teams in the conference not even compete in the postseason strictly because of APR, Academic Progress Report. So mm -hmm. like that, that to me like shows you, okay, this is, we're not, we're not playing on the same playing field. So like Saban coming out and saying that, that was just, to me, I know I'm rambling here and I'm sure people are listening to this thinking like, Saban wasn't talking about HBCUs when he was referencing parody. Okay, but when you bring up your issue about NIL, five days after the fact, you do reference a rumor, not even right. a proven fact, about something an HBCU did to sign one single player, you are then talking about HBCUs. So Saban might have raised some perfectly fair points about wanting regulation. Again, like totally understand that, but it was just very un-Saban-like to see him so all over the place with trying to make this specific point. Just, I thought that was something that that was worth cleaning up that we didn't necessarily hit on during that emergency pop. But Will, Bre Will referenced this on, on, on uh, what was it, Thursday night mm -hmm. and texted me about it and was like, you know what? Yeah, we should talk about that. Yeah. That's absolutely worthy. And just to say again, like we're both saying the same thing. Like we don't think Saban's racist. We don't think he's like saying anything from that vein. Like I genuinely think he didn't like kind of know the impacts of that. But like I said, it's just the Dion situation is different. It really is. And and the, for the amount of progress he is kind of bringing forward to shine light on HBCUs, like, like we're saying, it just doesn't make a ton of sense to pick that guy to knock it down. Because yeah, let's say they land two or three four-star recruits in the next couple of years while Dion's there. It's not gonna affect Alabama's bottom line at all. And honestly, if you are having trouble, as FSU did, recruiting against Deion Sanders, that's your own fault. <laughs> right, so. exactly. That's that's the way that the sport is heading, and oh well, that's, that's exactly what we're gonna see probably play out until at least some sort of regulation comes in place and maybe we see some more defined rules. Okay, didn't wanna just talk about that today. We got playoff picks. Oh boy. Well, yeah, um, around, around this time last year, I called my shot. I had Cincinnati in the playoff, mm -hmm. I stuck with it. Mm -hmm. I had Georgia in the playoff. I also had Clemson and Oklahoma with Clemson winning it all, but who cares about that? Nobody cares. Who would have thought the Cincinnati <laughs> pick would ring true, but the Clemson, Clemson pick would look the worst out of all of those. Right, yes. Egg on my face for that. No, that I think that overall is like pretty high and like the people who are talking about it. Just from getting two of the four and yeah, and what and not being Alabama, I think that's a big deal. I, and I like doing this early because I don't I don't want to convince myself of something after somebody else comes out with it or whatnot. If we if there are if if all of a sudden we're seeing Bryce Young and C.J. Stroud go down with season-ending injuries, yeah, like we'll, we'll revisit the subject. I, I promise. But I like being able to come out with these early and. To be clear, predicting a team to make the playoff is not necessarily saying that I think they deserve to start off as a top four team. As we know, not all paths to the playoff are created equal, just not the case. Mm -hmm. I really, really like Baylor, and I might end up having Baylor at number four when I do my early rankings, like my, my preseason rankings when I finalize those in August because they are loaded in the trenches, Trenches, four starters back in the offensive line. Aranda has quietly been really, really good in the portal with adding linemen. I love how decisive Aranda was with naming Blake Sharp in the starter. I, I think that this offense could kind of go to a higher level with Jeff Grimes, AKA the guy that was behind the Zach Wilson season at BYU, like all these things. 
but I still look at that path and I'm like, that's eh, got a couple too many landmines for me. September alone, mm -hmm. Baylor has to travel to BYU and to Iowa State. Do not sleep on that Baylor-BYU game. Mm -hmm. One of the sneaky good games of the college football season. I think that'll be BYU number two in the country in percentage of returning production, the great stat that Bill Connolly always puts out. As our good friend Josh Pay outlined, uh, BYU is one of 19 FBS programs with quarterback, head coach, DC, and OC all back. It's not that many. That's really low, really, really low number. I almost talked myself into BYU as a playoff team. I almost did. Didn't quite though, didn't quite. Just because that path is really, really difficult. Like maybe in another year I would, but <laughs> home against Baylor at Oregon, neutral site Notre Dame, home against Arkansas at Boise State at Stanford. Do I really think that they're running the table there? No, because I don't think a one loss non-Power 5 team is making it to the playoff, which, you know, BYU would essentially need everything to kind of blow up. So not gonna, not gonna put all my chips on BYU, not gonna do that this year. As for Baylor, they've also got road trips to Oklahoma and Texas, and then they've got to win the Big 12 title game, having gone at least like three and one in those games, if we're including the road games at BYU and at Iowa State. We are still Dave Aranda believers, just maybe oh, not yes. for the playoff. So oh, yes. Yeah, BYU, soon to be Power 5 participant, so maybe they're a couple of years away. We'll see. But uh, yeah, yes. if you took, this is going to slightly derail you, but I think it's worth, if you took like all like FBS head coaches, just that you think off the top of your head. Aranda has to be pretty near the top for just like IQ, like one to like score, right? Who would you put above him? Mm. Maybe maybe like a Pat Fitzgerald just because we know he went to Northwestern. Like, is there anybody else you put in that category? Yeah, it's it's tough because some of the, like you get put in so many different boxes, mm. right? Like Dabo's never going to be put in the IQ box. Although at the same time, like if, if, you, if you actually kind of dissect his roots and as somebody who was a receivers coach, was a position coach, he's not necessarily this mastermind play caller. So you wouldn't look at him from an IQ standpoint and say that he's great. But obviously there are different elements of football IQ that would say he is phenomenal at what he does and players absolutely love him. Mm -hmm. And that is why he's been able to get to this level of success. So that, that question's tough and I would really have to kind of define what exactly right, that, yeah. that ranking would be based I, on. I mean, that, sorry, what's up? No, because I was going to say, then, then what do you do with the guys who are, you know, like a Mark Stoops of the world, right? Right. Who are considered these more like blue collar type guys who want to build their team in the trenches and, and a Brett Bielema. Does Brett Bielema not have football IQ? No, I, no, no, no. I'm not even saying football IQ. I'm saying straight up like he, where, where I'm going with that is you talk about the portal and stuff. It's like, he's a guy that feels like a word game guy. Like I bet his wordle score is nasty. Like he feels like he could be like, okay, like here are my problems going into the season. I'm not going to have a press conference. I'm not, I'm just going to get in the lab, fix these 10 problems in a row, not tell anybody. And then, cause that was what everybody said about him when he was across the country, these different places. It was like, he's just kind of too smart for everyone. Like it's, we don't know if he can get the relatability part of it, which is what Dabo is so great at. You mentioned Dabo. So it's like, yeah, it's, just, it's cool that he's gotten that part of it figured out enough. And then you get to see his mind on defense work and like getting these guys in these positions where you're just like, oh my God, like watching like that Ole Miss bowl game was just a masterclass by that defense. And it was all scheme because they don't have five stars, you know? Rank the brains of college football based on <laughs> smallest to biggest. Dave Veranda, yeah, he's probably high. He's probably really high on that list. Might have to, I think if things get a little bit lean here in June, we'll, we might have to rank some, some coach brains. Okay, uh, speaking of contenders with landmines, uh, thought about Notre Dame, really don't like all the potential landmines here. They got the opener at Ohio State. Um, here's a stat. I tweeted this out the other day. 
The Irish are 2-21 against top five teams since 1999. Those two wins, 2005 Michigan, a team that finished 7-5, and and 2020 Clemson, who was without Trevor Lawrence, and then that Clemson team avenged the loss by beating Notre Dame like a drum in the ACC championship um, when Trevor Lawrence was, of course, back. So uh, not the best track record. Oh, yeah, uh, of those 21 losses to top five teams since 1999, 14 of them were by three scores or more. Not great. Probably not going to be a game that Notre Dame wins. So counting that as a loss. Uh, I'm not even sure that a one-loss Notre Dame team can make a playoff without having a conference title game to play in. Mm-hmm. So is Notre Dame going to be eliminated for the college football playoff for anybody else? Like if they lose by 28 to Ohio State in the opener, are we going to be like, oh, I guess the Irish is done. <laughs> we could only hope. Yeah, so uh, <laughs> plus, let us not forget, they've got a certain trip to UNC at the end of September. Gene Chizik, he's going to have the boys ready to roll. Okay? <laughs> Gene the fact Chizik that I get to say that. The fact that I get to say that and just throw that in there at random points of the podcast when people aren't going to be expecting it, oh, chef's kiss. Looking forward to that. So I, I could see Notre Dame potentially having two losses in September, or if they don't, maybe they're going to lose at home to Clemson or they're going to lose at USC. One of those cases. Uh, the, the, the path is, is ugly for them. So path is part of it, but if you've got the talent, you've got the history of success, you've got the coaching staff, all those different things, you can overcome that. All right. So we told you who's not going to be in the playoff. Ready for the playoff field? Yes. You ready? We're not going to do a drum roll. That's all. Uh, yeah, that's I all. Yeah, I drum rolls. It's more like a rattling sound. I didn't really know what we were getting at, but I appreciate where, where the thought process was. I can't do a bang on the drum. That's why I asked you to do it. Mm-hmm. Okay. First playoff team, Alabama. For everyone saying that's so easy, yeah, it is. It is really easy. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> You're right. I also, as you brought up earlier, I didn't have Alabama in the playoff last year and ended up being wrong. So I'm not necessarily one of these set it and forget it type guys right. with Alabama. I'm not exactly fine bomb sitting here that Alabama's going to win a national championship every single year and just hope the odds are in my favor. I actually came into the offseason with some legitimate questions about the skill positions, but I loved what they did in the portal with Jameer Gibbs, Tyler Harrell, the receiver from Louisville, and then Jermaine Burton, of course. If you're Alabama, you're only adding guys you feel like you could have out on the field in a championship game. It's as simple as that. All of those guys right there, absolutely, they could be on the field in a championship game. Mm -hmm. If Jordan Addison had picked Alabama instead of USC, I think Alabama's status as a unanimous preseason number one would have been locked in. I can go on an entirely separate rant about Jordan Addison not picking Alabama and why picking USC was a little bit more head-scratching than people probably gave credit to. The fact that Lincoln Riley's only had three receivers drafted during his time as a head coach at Oklahoma, and that should probably raise more red flags than it does. But whatever, that's beside the point. We're not getting into that. I think that this there, there are spin zones galore for Alabama, right? And I'll, and I'll make some of them for their deficiencies, that is. You've got a bad offensive line. Cool. You've got the best quarterback in the sport to be able to handle that in Bryce Young. You've got questions at linebacker. Well, I mean, what we consider a traditional linebacker mm-hmm. uh, because Will Anderson, Jack linebacker, you know, whatever, whatever you want to call him. He's a weapon of um, mass destruction. He's that a linebacker. He is. Yeah, uh, Will Anderson and Dallas Turner lining up on opposite edges is going to probably cost a few position coaches their jobs this year. Uh, Let's just say that I don't think a lot of offensive tackles will be using their Alabama film on their NFL draft tape. Probably not the best place to be able to turn. So that's... That's the good thing of what Alabama has is you can kind of overcome some of those weaknesses. There's also no motivation needed for this team. I mean, 
as we said, Alabama played in six of the last seven national titles. It's as safe a bet as any to say that the Tide will get back to the playoff. Will, do you have any problems with that whatsoever? No, yeah, I think you did the bold thing and left him out last year and ended up being wrong, like you said. So at this point, I'm never going to slander anyone for like rooting or picking Alabama because, boy, if you made a career out of that, you'd be right a lot more than not. Yeah, that'd be a tough look. Uh, who would do that? Uh, Manuel Acho would do that. Yeah. Yeah, I don't, I don't want to ruffle any feathers here, guys. I just want to say Alabama's good. It's like Nick Wright with LeBron. It's like, all right, eventually LeBron's going to win something and you're going to be validated. Yeah. Yeah, good Good luck with that. Um, I, I don't know that I'd pick that hill to die on. So, okay, another obvious one, Ohio State. Yep. If you had told me after the 2014 season that in the next seven years after that, Ohio State would win just one playoff game, I would have laughed you out of the room. Mm-hmm. Think about that for a second. Ohio State is one of the reasons why people say the sport is boring because it's the same teams in the mix every year. And Ohio State has one playoff win in the last seven seasons. That's it. That's crazy. That's how hard winning in this sport is. There's this piece of me that wonders though about Ryan Day just kind of sitting at home these last few months and just stewing over everyone saying that Kirby Smart is next. That's what we're always looking for in this sport. Okay, we default to that. Ryan Day though, 43 years old. Pretty good track record so far. 23 and 1 against the Big Ten. He's like, I'm not saying this to be mean. He just looks older than Kirby. He's always sweating. Like, I'm not being mean, but I thought he was in his 50s. Him being 43 is actually pretty terrifying for the rest of us. Oh, no. Yeah. He's he's young, and he's, I mean, that's what they were saying about Lincoln Riley. I think different potential issues that Ryan Day could have compared to what Lincoln Riley dealt with in terms of the ceiling and whatnot. But Track record uh, is good. In case we kind of forgot, lost in the shuffle of that Michigan loss, 23 and one against the Big Ten. Okay, he was 23 and 0 against the Big Ten up until that Michigan game. 34 and four overall, 12 and four against the AP Top 25, and seven and three against the AP Top 10. That all checks out. Their worst offensive season with Ryan Day calling the play, so that includes 2018 as well, was averaging a mere 41 points per game, and that was during the COVID season. Okay. And they, their offensive floor is playoff game. Yeah, that's the one they won the playoff yeah. game in. Exactly. Go figure that, that that ended up being that season. Ryan Day's time could be now. He's got a nice situation this offseason that I think a lot of coaches would kind of be like, sign me up for that. Because C.J. Stroud's name, it comes after Bryce Young's. Mm-hmm. Ohio State's name, it comes after Alabama's. And it should. That's just the way that things played out last year. And that's the way that we're going to have these conversations throughout the offseason. But something worth keeping in mind. They didn't have their season come to an end by some fluky bad call. They got punched in the mouth by Michigan. Yep. I think I think Ohio State. <laughs> some people are going to listen to this and t- interpret this in a different way. I think Ohio State sort of needed to get punched in the mouth. <laughs> they did. They really did. That path this year lines up really, really well. Home games against Notre Dame, Wisconsin, Michigan. So you kind of check that box of a meaningful non-conference game. You got to go to Happy Valley. That's that's tough. But I say I feel like I say that every single year. And Ohio State has quietly won nine of ten against Penn State. And the lone loss was that blocked field goal return in 2016. Which, if you want to talk about fluky plays, that was one for the ages. Mm-hmm. Right? That was the exact wrong balance that Ohio State could have had in that moment, and they lost that game. So Ohio State makes the playoff. Those are the those are the easy ones, the obvious ones. Dude, let's let's get a little weird. Let's see that. Cool. Okay. Utah. The Utes. I know. I know. I know. But the Pac-12 was terrible. Five consecutive years without a playoff team. It's basically the Power Four. I hear this. I hear this. I don't think I've ever picked a Pac-12 team to make the playoff. I don't think I have. 
Huh. I could be wrong on that. I could be wrong on that. This might be the first. This is this is like my Cincinnati. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it would just be Oregon. I, I don't really ever remember you being big on an Oregon team. So there's no other option that's ever really made sense other than like the first Washington team way, way, way back in the day. I don't even think, yeah. No, USC in 2017 could have been another option. Yeah. But I don't, I don't even think I went there. I could, I could be wrong on that, but I'm pretty sure. I'm just going to say, you know what? I'm just going to say it. Nobody can prove me wrong. This is the first <laughs> time I've ever picked a Pac-12 team to make the college football playoff. Um, okay, so I, I talked a lot about Cameron Rising in my favorite Heisman bets. So instead of kind of repeating myself, I'll just say that this, this past year, Utah was a very, very different team once he became the starter. If you're looking back on the year that Utah had and you're kind of scratching your head trying to figure it out, like, wait a minute, what are those two games that they lost? They lost to BYU, they lost to San Diego State. What was going on there? Uh, Cameron Rising wasn't the starter yet. After that, though, when he took over, Utah was 9-2. and two. All nine wins were by multiple scores. That's pretty remarkable to do. Um, the losses, seven win Oregon State team on the road, and then the Rose Bowl, wherein Cameron Rising got hurt in the fourth quarter with 10 minutes left in a tie game. Ohio State goes on to win. Mm -hmm. Maybe it's a little bit different if he's able to play. Maybe it's not. I don't know. It was a great game, and he looked awesome in it. I love the weapons he's got coming back. No power five back in the country had more touchdowns last year than Tavion Thomas. He's the featured tailback. They got this guy, Brant Keefe. He is a Pac-12 Brock Bowers. Okay. Like, yes, very much. They line him up all over the place. They even run end arounds to him, just like Brock, like Brock Bowers gets. That's the new caveat. If you're going to be compared to Brock Bowers, I need to see you run an end around. If you're not <laughs> at least want to do that, don't don't give me that mess. I don't want to just see you catch passes in the, in the red zone. That's not good enough. I need to see you run an, run an end around. And then, you know what, maybe just for good measure, let's throw this in there as well. Have a 70-yard touchdown. If you can't do that, Miss me with that take. I don't want to hear the Brock Bowers comments. Let's see. What did he? He wouldn't be uh, vegan Brock Bowers. He would be gluten-free Brock Bowers out west. That's good. I like that. I like that. <laughs> that definitely plays. So this is a Utah offense last year that ranked in the top 15 in the country. They return all three of those guys who could be the best players at their respective positions in the Pac-12. Have some questions on the offensive line, but they should still be set up really well there. They need to find a new leader on that defense with Devin Lloyd gone. They're hoping that Clark Phillips can kind of be that guy, their lockdown corner. Crazy that Lloyd was the only player drafted off that team last year. Usually doesn't happen for a top wow. 15 team in the country. That's, that's yeah, it. Yeah, that's crazy. Yeah, so they return a lot. I, I am buying the Utes. The path is there, especially with USC and Oregon having first year coaches. I think that matters. That opener against Florida should be, I think, Vegas doesn't agree with me on this, but I think that this should be catching Florida at the right time. Game one with a new coach. I think the swamp is going to be electric for Billy Napier's debut, but I, I do think that Utah is going to be able to win that game. I think the Utes will be undefeated going into that mid-October game against USC, and at the same time, everybody, because maybe USC only has one loss or something, mm -hmm. everyone's going to be talking about Caleb Williams and Lincoln Riley. I could close my eyes and picture this college game day, and they're going to Utah, and it's this great game in the Pac-12, and all we see is Cameron Rising have this unbelievable day against a very new-look USC defense, and then that win sort of gives Utah some leeway where they could theoretically like lose at Oregon, still be a one-loss Pac-12 champ, and make the field. So lock it in, Utes, subject to a Cameron Rising injury. That would be the caveat. Bookmark real quick on Action Network. Florida is still favored in that game by a point and a half. I still oh, don't get it. I. I really like I don't I I don't know if I talk I don't bet on sports for like personal reasons but like I 
that seems like free money. If Florida comes out and beats them, it wouldn't even be an upset, weirdly enough. But, like, they... Okay, you would predict if that would be a playoff team for them to just shellac Florida, right? I don't think they're going to shellac Florida. I don't think that's the case. Mm -hmm. I, think that's still, I think that's still a really difficult place to have to go and play, especially when you have expectations, when you have a preseason top 10 ranking. They're, they're maybe going to have their best preseason ranking in program history. I think that's going to add all the more juice to that game. But am I sitting here thinking that Florida with that defense that I've said, man, I just have very low expectations for. Talking about all those guys on the Utah offense, I, I think that's gonna be a really tough, tough task to stop those guys. But hopefully at least gives us a good game and who knows, maybe I'll be eating crow at the end of week one. I don't think their playoff chances would be dead. They would certainly uh, hurt, obviously, if they lost that opener in the swamp. Yeah, I was not trying to set you up to Slater, Florida. I just, you're saying Utah is a playoff team. I would have reset the expectations there because that line is still a point and a half. Like, so. It's yeah, bizarre. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm with you. Like, I think this is gonna be a good game. I could see it being like a seven, 10 point win for Utah. But again, Florida, that's awesome. That that Rose Bowl was one of the best games I've ever seen in my life. They were neck and neck with Ohio State. And if they're bringing back that whole offense that was just shredding Ohio State and like all of their amazing DBs that they have over there, that's like, that would be a pretty good way to start your program. Be a really tough, um, it'd be a really tough look for big game Boomer who continues to say that Florida's <laughs> gonna be the worst team in the SEC. Um, yeah, speaking of big game Boomer, <laughs> Oklahoma. We Sooners must, are we must be stopped. Team. Society has advanced past the need for Big Game Boomer. He's getting out of here. We might have to do a separate pod related to Big Game Boomer uh, at a later date. Uh, Oklahoma is... It's no longer boring to say that Oklahoma can make the playoff. Mm -hmm. At least it shouldn't be because you've got a new regime in there. So it's entirely different from the same Lincoln-Riley narrative of, oh, who are they going to lose to in the first round of the playoff again? I think it, it, it at least feels different from a preseason standpoint because we have a lot more of those questions. First year, first time head coach and Brent Venables, obviously. Ryan Day is the only first year coach to make the playoff. Like Venables, a first time head coach as well. Venables was far from the splashiest hire of this cycle. I feel like there's a chance that we look back and Venables and Napier end up being like the two best hires and we're like, wow, interesting because they were probably not even in the top three or top four of most talked about guys in this cycle and understandably so given their backgrounds. But um, I think Venables has the most success of all the year one coaches and here's why. Everybody keeps talking about all the pieces that Oklahoma lost, understandably so. Caleb Williams, Mike Williams, Jaden Hazelwood, Spencer Radler, Austin Stogner, all these guys transferred. They had five defensive players drafted. I get it. Even though I like Dylan Gabriel a lot and I like the pass catchers that they got from Mizzou, I'm not gonna pretend like Oklahoma somehow came ahead in, in the portal. Like they, they, there wasn't a net positive. We're not arguing for that. Mm -hmm. But here's what I do like. I'd say Jeff Levy is one of the top 10 offensive minds in the sport. Maybe give or take a few spots. I'd probably yeah. put him more in like that seven to eight range. And I'm long overdue to do that. The top 25 offensive minds in the sport. I did that back in 2017 and I need to be able to revisit that. Mm -hmm. um, so that, that's coming at, at a later date. Uh, so where I come back to though is how many teams in college football can say that they've got a top seven coach on both offense and defense, mm -hmm. right? I know you're not as big of a Venables guy, but 
Dude had the number two defense in America last year. Oh, he made some money last year. I, that was the most oh, yeah. respectable, venerable season of all time to me because that yeah. offense was dog. And he was just carrying those boys into every win, giving up like, you know, 12 points a game or whatever. Here's a wild stat. I, I didn't even realize this. In the last five years, Clemson had a top three defense four times. Mm-hmm. That is good, man. That is a high floor. It's been a decade since Venables failed to have a top 25 defense. And that was year one at Clemson, of course. Jeez. Year one year one at Oklahoma, a group that ranks number 15 in the country in percentage of returning production from, uh, from a, a group last year that wasn't very good, but at least still ranked in the top half of the country. So there isn't some massive overhaul that some might assume there. I know, Will, you are a big Jeff Levy guy. Yeah, the thing about Levy real quick is like, I always, I try to be fair about UCF, but the thing about the UCF stuff is like, if their guys keep leaving and succeeding, it's gonna get harder and harder to slander them. Like, Tennessee fans, your guy is a UCF guy. Dylan Gabriel and, and Levy, both UCF guys, like from that coaching tree, it's because I didn't even anticipate Hypo would do as well as he did. That was like the first podcast we did together, me being like, I don't think it's gonna work at the SEC. Looks year one, like I was kind of wrong about that. Levy and Dylan Gabriel, I would bet the farm on. I mean, those guys, Dylan Gabriel, if you take him outside the Gus system, which we all know what Gus does to quarterbacks, no reason to revisit that. But if you look at him in the Hypo system, you were like, this guy looks like. Dan Marino. <laughs> if you yes. go back and watch his, his highlights, it's like, oh, he's he's like kind of tough. He's got like kind of swagger about him. And then Levy, same thing. Like whenever Lane handpicks you, Lane is a guy who does not care about you know blemishes or presentation. He cares about can you get it done? Do you have a great college football mind? Like we just talked about. And Levy has won that award from Lane Kiffin, and obviously went to Oklahoma with Venable. So yeah, I, I think that's a dream pairing. You're absolutely right. I love the Levy Gabriel reunion as mm-hmm. well. Uh, I'm excited to see that. And the fact that Marvin Mims is back is so huge because I think he's going to light it up in that offense even more than he did in Lincoln Riley's offense Ooh. because of the way that they're going to attack downfield. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, his numbers last year, he only had like 700 receiving yards. Like all these receivers that Oklahoma lost, you look, you look up and you're like, wait a minute, this guy's only had like 300 yards, like 400 yards. Even Mike Woods, a guy that we talked about a lot at this time last year, the transfer from Arkansas, was drafted. Uh, he was a late day three guy. Who you're just like, oh yeah, he didn't really have that kind of big time season. Mm-hmm. And Mims is, in my opinion, he was the most important receiver to keep on board for what they're trying to do with that that system. He's going to fit it really, really well. So you have that. You have the offensive line returning three starters. That doesn't even include the multi-year starter that they picked up from Cal on the offensive line. So I believe in the play callers on both sides of the ball like a lot. Mm-hmm. And, and I also thought this was kind of a sneaky a sneaky move here. Brent Venables kept four members from the previous regime. Really smart, really, really smart. You're trying to establish continuity and avoid that weeding out process because it's not like you're taking over a program that needed a gut job, okay? Mm -hmm. You're not walking into a place where you had all these entitled guys. You had a head coach here who wanted to go to USC and thought that he was gonna be able to win championships there instead of Oklahoma, which I understand we got into that a few months ago, but you didn't necessarily need to overhaul the staff and so you don't. Three of those four guys that that he retained from the staff, they played at Oklahoma too. Levy graduated from Oklahoma. Yep. So you got all these Oklahoma guys still on that staff. I, I just thought that's one of those things that we'll, we'll forget about if and when Oklahoma's in the hunt. And we're like, wow, the Sooners are having a better year than USC, which is absolutely going to be a storyline. I'm here for that. That's a good national storyline that I think even SEC fans can kind of get on board with because we need more of these like, 
actual rivalries that aren't just entrenched with things that happened 60 years ago. Yep. Good modern day rivalry with the portal and with a coach leaving and stuff like that. Oh, so, if you want to talk grudges, DeMarco Murray and Lincoln Riley. <laughs> oh, that's that a is guy. a grudge, buddy. If you look up and see the stuff he said about Lincoln Riley. <laughs> when, if, if Oklahoma gets to a college football playoff press conference, that's the situation where you could see DeMarco Murray just teeing off on Lincoln Riley. Yep. Just let, because I don't know how much media availability he's going to have assistance that's kind of few and far between. I know Lincoln Riley was really, was really anal about that during his time there. But mm -hmm. that's one of those scenarios where like, oh yeah, if they make the college ball playoff, DeMarco Murray will go national for some sort of headline that he says about Lincoln Riley. Oh yes. It's like, here um, we both are. Look at us. Who would have thought? Yes. <laughs> So they, they got that, they got the path working for them as well. They gotta go to Nebraska this year. Um, here's another fun stat. We're just loaded with fun stats today. People need to talk more about Scott Frost being 0-13 against AP Top 25 opponents at Nebraska. Let me repeat that for the okay, people in the sure. back. Scott Frost is 0-13 against AP Top 25 opponents at Nebraska. Not even one, Yeah. not even one. All right, so we're just gonna move on from that. Sure. If you're Oklahoma, you get... Random Scott Frost just gets hit by a bus in the middle of the podcast. Keep it pushing. Cool, yeah. Ricochet shots. They're all the rage these days. He just caught one from me. If you're Oklahoma, you get Baylor. You get Oklahoma State at home this year. I think that matters. I always think that Matt Campbell steals one that he shouldn't. So that's always the game that I kind of have circled for one of those teams, one of those Big 12 contenders. He always seems to be able to knock off one of them. So that trip to Ames could be a little bit of a hiccup. But even if that's the case, a one-loss conference title team, um, that, that, that seems very within reach for Oklahoma. Okay, any thoughts on that before we get to some national championship stuff that we're definitely going to be wrong about? Um, no, just I'll say really quick on Oklahoma. One thing that's interesting when you talk about a guy like Venables, it's interesting to see how guys are starting to insulate their college football resumes. Like, talking about UCF hiring Gus, where it's like, okay, like here's a guy who comes from a place that's already been. So it's a lot easier to give you the benefit of the doubt than it would be probably even for Lincoln Riley, where it's like, but maybe one loss Oklahoma might do a little bit better with the polls than Lincoln Riley's Oklahoma did, because it's like, oh, like, Wait, mm. this is a guy who at big games has gotten in the championship, has won the championship game. It's not going to be, as has been in previous year, a wasted spot if a not imperfect Oklahoma team gets there. So it's just it's just kind of interesting uh, to look up and down this. And then, yeah, I mean, you kind of think Ryan Day's due for something, right? I mean, him having fewer playoff wins than Coach O is very funny. I'd love to say that yes. way because it's funny. But you, you'd think the year is coming for them, right? I don't know. Let's talk about that. Okay, so <laughs> recap, Alabama, Ohio State, Utah, Oklahoma. That's that's the predicted playoff field mm -hmm. from, from this year podcast. Who wins it all? I am reluctantly going with Ohio State beating Bama in the title game. Oh boy. Before, before you turn this podcast off and give us a one-star review and say that I'm crazy. Remember there are two of us, and if one to five is two and a half, all right? <laughs> The single most underrated preseason stat is this. Turn, turn, turn the volume up on your headphones right now. You're gonna to wanna to hear this. You're gonna to wanna to be able to drop this at some barbecue you're going to this summer where somebody says Alabama or bust. Have this stat ready to go. Will, since 2005, how many AP preseason number one teams went on to win the national championship? I feel like 90% of these are Alabama. Um, so that's the one thing that like kind of throws me. So how many how many years is it? Since two thousand five. Right. So that's from two thousand five to 
to 2021. That's 17 years. 17 years. 17 seasons. How many times has the AP preseason number one team gone on to win the national championship? I'm going to say like eight with most of those being Alabama. Not even close. Wow. How many is it? One. Seriously? So That's every offseason, people lie to themselves about Alabama, and then they come up and beat. I'd be mad if I was saving two. Wow. That is hilarious. <laughs> I, I re, I'm going to repeat this stat in the interview with Ari, but it is worth hearing twice. For a sport that everyone says is so predictable, that is worth keeping in mind. And it's it's so hard to fathom because you're exactly right. And I actually like went through, I've looked this up like three different times. I actually, even today, before we did this, I have my notepad right here where and I drew this, where you're gonna have to look at this. <laughs> yeah, this like a, bad like video. a prehistoric Excel sheet, he's drawn up this notepad. Yeah, cause I, I, I did, I actually had like the document, I included in a story a few months ago and then I wanted to be able to just draw it out to see it with my own eyes, what it would look like. Go back, look it up. Who's, who's the one team? 2017 Alabama, that's it. And go figure, 2017 Alabama was a team that had to rally from a double-digit deficit in the national championship and win in overtime. They went back-to-back in there like a couple of times. How? It's crazy. Anyway, that's, yeah, look, like I said, doubting Alabama leaves you right here, okay? So. Yes. But Alabama's going to be the preseason number one team. Yep. They they are. Like, I I really, my my only question is if they're going to be unanimous or not. Really, mm-hmm. and that has only happened once in the history of the AP polls, 2015, Ohio State. Okay, why does this exist? And, and how does that relate to this year? Why is it something that we should maybe factor into our playoff predictions when we do these things and then throw them out just to inevitably, inevitably be wrong? Having eight months without games and being told how good you are has to be extremely difficult even for Alabama. I really, I think there's something to it. 18 to 22 year old kids, and in this internet age that we've seen since 2005, I mean, that's kind of when internet has really taken off since then, mm-hmm. that, that's just a harder standard to live up to than we realize. I mean, look, look it up, go ahead. Like, we can go through all these different examples here, even like 2008, like 2008, Georgia's preseason number one, Florida wins it all. Like, what were we doing in, like, okay, so 2014, that's a good example. Or no, no, no. Actually, let's take a year in which Alabama won it all, but they weren't preseason number one. Mm-hmm. Um, you would take, okay, so a year in which Alabama won it all, but they weren't the preseason number one team. 2012 is the one that's that's hard to fathom. 2012 is the most egregious that's, one because USC was the preseason number one, Lane's undoing, which ultimately ended up leading to the, the tarmac, not necessarily specific to that season, but- USC. Um, <laughs> was up for one after they had just split with LSU and beaten the pants off of them. And okay, but like 20, 2011 Alabama. Right. 2011 Alabama, you're thinking to yourself, all right, Alabama was in the midst of three or four national titles. Why were they Why were they not preseason number one? What did they do in 2010? They had a back-to-earth season. Their only bad season. <laughs> well, Alabama was preseason number one in 2010. Which, again, they, that has games. been the least sensical season of any of this because that was when they had, like, Ingram, Julio, like, Greg was back. Like, that was such an aberration. And I bet people at the time were like, see, see, this is why. We don't know about this Saban guy. And, yeah, then two straight titles after that, yeah. And, and there have been close calls. It's not to say that the preseason number one team, like, falls off the face of the earth or whatever. Like, you know, 2016 where... 
Alabama is the preseason number one and Clemson wins that national title, of course. Like actually history repeated in 2018, Alabama is the preseason number one, Clemson wins a national title. Right. But even like this past year, Alabama was preseason number one, Georgia wins a national title by beating Alabama in the title game. So it's just a crazy, crazy stat that we we don't talk about enough. We, we just don't. So. I'm hopefully going to get this out into the universe and more people will actually say, oh, is maybe being preseason number one a bad thing? So essentially AP voters are just wrong every single year, you're telling me, because the years they don't put Alabama number one, they win. The years they put them number one, they don't win. It's just all about rat poison, man. <laughs> That's what it all comes down to. Rat poison is actually the, the, the thing that makes the whole universe go. That's actually maybe my favorite stat you've got on here. Yeah. Rat poison is undefeated. That's all we know. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, so I'm going with Ohio State because I think they saw all of their flaws. We talked about getting punched in the mouth and I think they addressed them well, mainly with getting a new defensive coordinator yep. because when you have a championship standard with a clear weakness, that's what you do. Yes, shots fired at you, Dan Mullen. Um, <laughs> Switching to a 4-2-5, that's going to help combat some of the issues that they had where they really struggled last year replacing those linebackers. Man, like it was bad. It was really bad. So like they need more guys in the field who can actually cover because they weren't able to do that very well. They were so bad. I think they were like 96 in the country against the pass. That's a problem when your defensive line also struggles. Really bad combination of things. But returning basically every non-Haskell Garrett guy on that defensive line with a better scheme, I think they're going to have a big turnaround with Knowles who they got from Oklahoma State. Ari talks about that a little bit as well. Um, he's also going to be coaching the linebackers there, so I think that's important. You're not beating Alabama with a mediocre defensive line, but obviously you can win if you can get home with four and mm -hmm. get some extra speed on the back end. I'm not really breaking news by saying that's a good formula, but it is. You know, uh, history proves it. Yeah. So that's key in all of this, in my opinion. It's not really about how much better Ohio State's offense can get because Ohio State's offense last year averaged four more points per game than the next closest Power Five team. They're still going to be ridiculously good. Mm -hmm. They got Stroud, Smith, and Jigba, and, and Henderson all back. There's no reason why they shouldn't be in the top two in the country nationally. It'll be a championship-level offense. There's no doubt about that. So that's how I'm predicting the playoff. Obviously, again, caveat being Bryce Young, CJ Stroud, one of these guys, starting quarterback goes down. We'll revisit this, maybe have to reassess. But for now, that's where we're at. Alabama, Ohio State, Utah, Oklahoma, with Ohio State beating Alabama in the title game. Thoughts? Um, do you have, this is definitely putting on the spot, I'm sorry, but it, it, so, right, we're big on Ohio State, but one thing about Ohio State is that great Ohio State teams will beat the tar out of the rivals, right, will beat Michigan, Wisconsin, Michigan State, bludgeon them to death, uh, like, other than last year, right, that was the one in a billion years, other than the 2010 season with the tattoos, uh, but do you have any thoughts for the one team that might sneak up and beat Ohio State? That's a great question. I think I kind of hinted at it with the Penn State stuff, but do I think Sean Clifford is going to be the guy to beat Ohio State this year? Um, I'll say it in Spanish, no. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, I, I think Ohio State could very easily go 12-0. I really do. I think they can go 13-0 into the playoff and be the number one overall seed. I think, I think that's something that, um, after the way that last year played out, would not surprise me because I, I can't predict Notre Dame to win that opener. I just can't, not on the road. First game for Marcus Freeman. That's that's a really daunting task. Um, I'm not predicting Wisconsin to go into Columbus and win that game. Mm -hmm. Just can't. Um, they get Iowa at home too. They don't, it's not like they have one of these games 
or they're going to Iowa City or something like that. They're playing in a 330 game and they lose 48 to 27 and you're kind of scratching your head going, what did Ohio State do? And even if that happens, mm-hmm. they can still win, win the conference and be just fine. I think, I think Ryan Day has just been so dominant against the Big Ten. Michigan State is interesting, but at the same time, like I do wonder about Michigan State in a post-Kenneth Walker world. So I, I can't, if I'm predicting today, I don't think Ohio State's losing a regular season game. I just don't. Yeah, I know that, I think we briefly talked about the schedule before, but like looking up and down the schedule, man, get ready because they're probably going to beat Notre Dame and Columbus. Every hard game on their schedule is at home. Every game that I'm looking at, yep. I'm just like, yeah, you. I mean, Michigan State, but again, like, I just don't think Michigan State has the horses. Like they, they great story last year, but we kind of saw it last year. It's like once you get the good story, guys, lined up with the five stars. Same thing as Michigan and Georgia. It was like, oh, oh, okay. So, buddy, Ohio State has been beating the brakes off of Michigan State ever since 2015. Yeah, like they've been beating them like a drum. Like that when that loss happened in 2015, where they they lost that game at home and they end their national championship run to to repeat in a game in which Michigan State didn't even have Connor Cook. Ever since then, man, like it's, and I took that personally. That's been Ohio State against right. State. So yeah, I mean, there's no way I think Michigan wins two in a row, especially with like losing Gaddis, like having all that weird thing with the Vikings happen in this offseason. I look it up and down the schedule. It's literally like an all-time ridiculous Iowa game that saves Ferrets for another 10 years or like Penn State finally winning a big game. And those are your two options because I was going to joke about Indiana, but they're playing in Columbus. So, like, that's probably not even possible. So, yeah, this point being, SEC fans, get ready for this Ohio State team to be talked about, like, 2019 LSU. Because this looks like a schedule they're going to be beating the brakes off of everybody. This playoff picture could have really similar vibes. If we see this play out with Alabama uh, having the regular season that many think that they could, mm-hmm. Alabama in this scenario would be like 2019 LSU, and Ohio State would just be like, you know, what Ohio State was that season where we kind of went back and forth. That's right. We kind of forget about that. Like as much as it felt very much like LSU's year, I mean, Ohio State was unbelievably dominant mm-hmm. with Justin Fields. And if they lose that game, uh, or if they win that game against Clemson, obviously and this is a subject that we also get into in the interview, like that, that game still isn't an Ohio State victory, but in my opinion, it would have been a better game than than what we ended up getting with Clemson and LSU. So that's we'll a good segue know. for me. Anyway. Yes, we'll never know. All right, let's get to Ari Wasserman. Ari does great work uh, for the athletic covering recruiting and much, much more. We touched on the, the Saban Jimbo stuff, a bit of Brian Kelly, little Ohio State with an infamous tweet that he had during that national championship game. Uh, and he's got a fast food take that we had a lot of fun with that I think um, I, I think people will think is really interesting. How's that for a tease? I think, I think that plays. Um, so here is Ari Wasserman. I'm now excited to be joined by a very special guest. It is Mr. Stars Matter, Ari Wasserman from The Athletic. Um, Ari, did anything interesting happen in the recruiting world? Uh, like, I don't know, maybe coaches on eight-figure salaries, uh, that, you know, calling each other out, or has it been kind of a pretty slow, typical week in May for you? I was just going to go to the pool and let lay out there today. Uh, I, uh, no, did you hear about anything? I, I haven't heard anything. No, it's been, it's been kind of weird. Like uh, you just kind of wait for all of these NIL fireworks to blow up and th- they're just kind of sitting there. I mean, they're, they're getting soggy if anything at this point. It's so funny to me because Saban and Jimbo just signed two of the best recruiting classes of all time. Yeah. So it's not like a, a feud between a, a program that's killing it and a program that is getting its ass kicked. It's like two of the most, successful recruiting jobs in the past, you know, 20 years happened in the same year and they're going at it. And I will say that it is kind of funny to me because 
you don't typically see coaches. Well, Jimbo Fisher, you know, as we're recording, this is the only one that directly addressed the other one, but say the things that he said. So you can tell it's personal. Um, and it's just interesting to me because it's all hearsay anyway. Like, you know, Texas A&M paid for its recruiting class. I'm sure conventional wisdom based on what they, they accomplished last year would be like, yeah, sure. But NIL is just a bunch of stuff thrown out into the atmosphere and everybody just accepts everything as fact. And like, it's just a little bit more complex than that. And Saban was saying things that I'm not even sure are necessarily true. And Jimbo Fisher is playing it down, even though it probably is true. And it's like not against the rules. So why are we denying it? Like there's so many like little extra layers to this that just are just funny to me. You know, I I don't know. I'm still trying to digest everything. It doesn't even matter who's right. That's that's the strange thing. I mean, about neither of them are right, though. I don't exactly. think either of them are right or either of them are wrong. It's and like I, I come I come away with this exactly the same way, where it's like I, I've spent so many times. Usually, when when there is a war of words in a situation like this, you find yourself siding with one more than the other. And if if I were a fan of Alabama, I would be like, yeah, I want Saban to come out and say this. If I were a fan of AM, I would want Jimbo to come out and defend himself like this. But right. I, I, I find different parts of their argument very hard to fully process. When Saban is going to come out here and say that, hey, we're doing it the right way, you can't have eight of 10 number one recruiting classes in the 2010s decade and then tell me that you've never had anything sort of, you know, under the, you know, the hush, hush, whatever, when we're talking about Dodge Chargers galore. And meanwhile, Jimbo is like, Hey, yeah, you can sit here and say this all you want, that what I've done is legal, but until you actually show me what exactly I've done, that's against the rules. That's against state law. Like you can't prove anything. And if nothing's against the rules, then why are you saying this about my program? And I think the number one response to all this is, well, Nick Saban has been cheating for years and it's just like, nobody's proven that. So it just, whatever you can't, it has nothing to do with anything. And, and second of all, this is within the realm of the rules. College football as a sport has always been defined rules, finding gray areas within the rules, and then trying to exploit those gray areas. That's literally what the sport is. So if Jimbo Fisher did, let's just say he paid a million dollars per player for his class. So what, like, why are we even denying it? Like you're allowed to do it. And I know like technically speaking, NCAA rules say that you can't use it as an inducement to get a player to come to your school, but everything is an inducement. What's the difference between here's a bag of cash. The second you get on campus, we're going to set this up for you and look at Bryce young. He made over a million dollars this year in NIL. Both are, are financial inducements to come. So it's an unenforceable rule. You can't pay players, but then also limit when and how they get paid. It's just impossible. You can't prove what someone's motivation is for going to a school, whether it be financial or for personal reasons. It's just the sport now. So like Jimbo Fisher comes out and says, yeah, well, I didn't, I, I don't want you to accuse me of cheating. Nope. Who accused anybody of cheating? Is that cheating? Cheating doesn't exist anymore. What's cheating? It's taboo and taboo taboo it, that maybe a, maybe a year into it, but it's not going to be in three years, I guess. But like, if I were a coach, I'd be like, hell yeah, I paid a million dollars a player. You want, you want a million bucks? You're a five-star prospect. My DMS are open. That's what I'd say. It is strange that Jimbo hasn't really leaned into this at all because he still views it as a slap in the face to his program. Because we've been conditioned for years and years and years to think that it's some Terrell Pryor sold his gold pants and his, his, his ring and they treated him like the guy committed a murder. Then there's been like a million 
different cases of Johnny Manziel signing jerseys under the table when he's not supposed like these guys are just trying to make an extra buck doing what they're who cares? It's like we're at the point now where it doesn't even matter. And like Nick Saban, I understand why he's upset because for his entire career, he has created a program where people see inherent value in just the scholarship, which is if you play for Nick Saban, you get better nutrition, better coaching, better atmospheres, a chance to win a national championship. And your odds of being drafted in the first round are drastically higher than everywhere else, which has an inherent value. And the only way that you can outdo that pitch is by writing somebody a big fat check when they're in high school, because people like bird in the hand better than, than investing. But if you look at the two sales pitches to me, if I had a five-star prospect, this is what I wrote today. And he was, he was my son. And Jimbo Fisher offered him $700,000 to just come and do NIL there. Or Nick Saban offered him a spot to say, hey, come to this roster. We'll develop you into an NFL prospect. And by the way, when you're here, you're probably going to make a lot of money anyway. Which sales pitch are you going to take? Are you going to take the bird in the hand and go play somewhere worse for someone worse? Or are you going to go play for the greatest coach of all time who has a marketable resume in developing you into a top 10, 15 pick, which then comes with generational wealth? So it's like the same thing. It's like, I'll ask you this question. If we were in Vegas right now and you and I were just chilling by uh, the sports book and someone walked up to you and said, hey, here's $100,000 in cash. I will hand you this money and you can take it and do whatever you want with it. It's yours. Or I'll flip this coin. And if this coin lands on heads, I'll give you a million bucks. And if it lands on tails, I'm taking this money and walking away. What are you going to do? Am I okay? Am I, I'm at my current age. I'm not, you know, an 18 year old kid or anything like that. Right. So we're right now. Okay. Right now. I don't think your age matters. And I guess like if you're in a certain position where a hundred thousand dollars could drastically improve your life, then maybe you'd be more in, encouraged to take it, which I guess gets to the t- the root of like where some of these kids are coming from. Yeah. But is a hundred thousand dollars going to change your life forever? It sounds like life changing money when you present it to a 17 year old kid. And that's why the cell works though. And that's, that's, but it's that's, not as you it's, grow it's older. Not. It's not, it's I not a $20,000 check to send my, my kid to day school for a year. Sick brag. Dang. No, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm sick to my stomach. It costs more money than it costs more <laughs> money than my college education. God. But the, the point is, I mean, that's how much this stuff costs. Is there a cheaper place? Because if I let me know, <laughs> uh, you know, the, 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 the idea of that much money is nice in the in the beginning is the point I'm trying to make. But you're probably going to flip the coin. I'm flipping the coin. Yeah, because one hundred thousand dollars, though, it would be nice. And I would like to use that for some things that I would want personally. A million dollars changes your life. So it's kind of like the same type of, of dynamic that kids have to weigh. It's like, do I want to take $500,000 now? Which I guess if you're starting to get into the millions and the eight millions, it changes the, 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 the dynamic a little bit. But like, it's not like Bryce Young isn't making money. It's not like the Alabama players aren't making money. It's not Texas A&M money versus nothing. It's just there's no deal that's guaranteed at the beginning. So I don't know. I mean, it's kind of an interesting dynamic for sure, but they're both kind of selling the same thing. It just comes in different forms. Saban saying that only 25 players made money off NIL and they had $3 million from the collective or or whatever, like whatever that pool was and that it was evenly distributed. I kind of scratched my head and go, wait a minute, 25 players are making money off NIL. How is the Jai Hall out here doing crystal ads given his role and what it was at Alabama in year one? If that's just part of the whole joke. Yeah. I, so, so, you know, it's like crystal ads. I don't know how much that costs, but, or how much he, they pay him for that, but it's just like, 
And all these these numbers are just thrown out there into the into the galaxy of bullshit. And everybody just assumes that everything is true. It's like did Quinn Ewers make a million dollars at Ohio State for his semester there. I, I bet mean, my life that he did not. I'd like to know what some kombucha tea, was. some kombucha tea company just gave the kid a million bucks for two posts on his Instagram. There's zero percent chance that happened, but everybody takes that as fact, you know, and it's just like it's like a hard thing. And like Nick Saban was saying, Travis Hunter got a million dollars to go to Jackson State. And it's like, is that a fact or are you a, a coach that makes ten million dollars a year just saying it things that you might have seen on Twitter? It doesn't matter. It does matter when you're in his position, though. You shouldn't be saying things that aren't true. But but that's the thing is that he has realized that at at this point, if he's going to get his point across, he can't wait for all these different facts to come out. If Saban's got an agenda to push, he's going to push non-factual things. He's going to run with things that have been said on message boards from people like Slice Bread. And he's going to put it out there into the atmosphere because at the end of the day, Saban's got an agenda that he wants pushed. He wants change. He wants both both Jimbo Fisher and Nick Saban. Ironically enough, but what is what is Nick Saban's goal? I don't know what his, his goal is. His He's goal is to, he wants he wants enforcement. Right? He wants what he feels like everybody operating under the same rules. He wants what he feels like something that the NCAA could look at with with Jimbo Fisher and say what you did is a violation of our rules and we are going to punish you for that. He wants to feel like there is some sort of governing body that has to be answered to because in the past while you can say that Nick Saban has operated under this this and this, you could say in the past, yeah, the NCAA can at least crack down on you for for recruiting violations on they haven't always done the best job at that, but that would be his argument on that. They weren't doing sure it how before. How are they going to do it now? Right. That's that's the issue. So is Nick Saban pushing for a removal to get away from the NCAA and to get an entirely new enforcement agency in place? I think that's a fair question to ask. Yeah. And I I mean, I guess if that's the case, then I think he would have a better shot of doing it rather than torpedoing another program. But I do think it's, it's so funny to me. It's not like Nick Saban's class was bad. Right. It's not like under the current, it's it's not like they fell from like winning the title, the recruiting title nine years in a row to like 12. Yeah. Like they were, I mean, it just Texas A&M's class got hot, obviously, and there's definitely money in College Station. So like you can do the math, but I just don't understand. Like, I think that Nick Saban's sales pitch has longer staying power than whatever's happening at Tennessee and whatever's happening at Texas A&M because the market will set itself. People will catch up. Texas A&M has a really huge advantage last year if, if what Nick Saban said is true. But you don't think that every other college program in the next five years is going to catch up to what they're doing financially if they see that it's working? Like, I think that eventually the the market will set itself. I think things will calm down and you're going to have more people who are spending their money to reward the current players on the roster who produce rather than throwing insane amounts of money for teenagers who haven't played yet. Because this is there's a lot of money being thrown out there. And it's like if if this player that's getting eight million dollars to go wherever he's going, uh sucks. That's a very, very poor use of money. So, you know, I, I, I think that like right now in college football, you change the transfer rules, which also has an NIL impact because inducement to transfers is, is, is a thing. And you've changed the NIL, uh, the entire amateur is a model all in the same summer. And of course there's going to be turbulence with that. There's a lot of change all at once in a sport that people like to, to have angles in. Over time, I'm hoping, I think everybody's hoping that it will kind of just ease up a little bit and then we'll like everything will be above board. But like I was surprised that Nick Saban said what he said because I don't think that a lot of the things that he said were even true. And I'm surprised that Jimbo Fisher 
um, not that he defended himself, but said some of the things that he said in that press conference because they both kind of look like whiny babies to me. Even though Jimbo admits he has no idea what goes on in the collective. <laughs> He's like, I don't know. Yeah. Like, that's, that's not yeah. my thing. I don't concern myself. Yeah. Like, yeah. It's like laying it all out there. Um, yeah. Well, it's just like calling somebody else a narcissist and telling us to go like look into his, his bag of skeletons. It's just like, dude, you work for the guy. Like, what are we doing here? <laughs> <laughs> Have you prepared yourself for the possibility that if AM doesn't win a national championship, like the next few years here that, all the people that are anti AM are going to tweet at you, stars matter, and just try and troll you? No, nah, you know, I mean, stars are an important aspect of recruiting. Uh, obviously, uh, it's not a guarantee. Like, it's like I always say this to people I feel like if you want to make a pizza, you have to have the dough. Um, and if you don't have the dough, you can't make a pizza no matter what. But it doesn't mean that because you have the dough, like it's guaranteed to be a good pizza. Facts. You know what I mean? Like, I, I, that's how I view it. It's just like, and I've said this a lot, A&M just signed the best class in, in modern recruiting history. But if they want their roster to look like Alabama's, they got to do that shit five times in a row, like five years in a row before they're actually winning national championships. So, you know, I think that it's infallible that that recruiting stars and, and accumulating talent at that level is, is an important aspect or not the most important aspect. And this is my favorite stat that I might tattoo on my back. <laughs> Since the modern era of recruiting started in 2000, only two, I'm mean, only three programs have won a national championship without having signed a top five class in any of the previous four years. Can I name at and, least one of them? Yeah, I bet you can. Okay. So, uh, 2016 Clemson. That's right. That's, that's gotta be one of them. Yep. 2013 Auburn. Yep. Or 2010 Auburn, 2010, Auburn. 2010 Auburn. Yeah. Cause 2013 Cam got Newton, to, Auburn. Right. Cam Newton, Auburn. And yep. then um, it's not any because Clemson's the lowest rated in terms of talent in the talent composite to have won in the playoff era, that That's 2016 right. Clemson team. So mm -hmm. then it's got to be, oh man, is it like one of those Oklahoma teams? No, because they never won a title. Oh, they got, yeah, well, they got to go to national championship. Okay. So then uh, 2004 Auburn? No, it's 2018 Clemson again. 2018. It was Clemson. both Clemson teams. Okay. And both in all three of those programs signed top 10 classes in the previous four years and had some of the biggest advantage at the quarterback position that a team could possibly have with Deshaun yeah. Watson, Trevor Lawrence and Cam Newton. So it's just like, if stars didn't matter, then why isn't wake forest just jumping out of nowhere in 2009 or something and winning a national title? Why isn't Northwestern winning the national championship? It's the same 10 teams over and over again, because it's the same 10 teams that have the best players. So to me, I feel like Texas A&M has put themselves in a position to compete at the highest level, especially after what they did last year. And they have some quarterback coming in um, and, you know, a lot of good defensive linemen and stuff. But in order to make a roster that's good enough to play with Alabama week in and week out and to sustain injuries and to stay fresh and to roll guys in, you need four or five years of, of elite level recruiting. And that's what you have at Georgia and Alabama and to a lesser extent, Ohio State and why these same teams are always very good. So I get trolled all the time. People don't want to believe it. Like there's like, you know, Upsets every week in college football where teams that have way less stars beat better teams. I'm not saying that they can never win in a single game ever. I'm just saying in order to sustain it for a long period of time over the course of a season and to win at the end of the season, it's like we saw with Michigan last year. They beat Ohio State. They didn't have nearly as much talent as Ohio State, and they kicked their ass. Then they got to the play. They couldn't win three games in a row like that because they just did not have a good enough team. So. You know, to me, I think it's just like a, it's like arguing about whether the world's flat or not. There's some people out there that think that it is Kyrie Irving, but yeah. it doesn't mean that it's, you know, there's a picture of the planet.
and it's a circle. Like, I don't know what else you would need. Like the, the stats and the, and the data is there. Brian Kelly's a fascinating study in stars matter because he goes from Notre Dame, a place where we, we believe he has these recruiting restrictions. And when he goes to LSU and talks about those recruiting restrictions, people at Notre Dame are kind of like a little bit miffed saying like, Oh, what's he talking about? Like, why, why would he, why would he highlight that and say, he's got a better chance to win a national championship at LSU. You wrote that LSU is the best job in the country to have. So I'm guessing which way you're kind of leaning with this. You're, you're more of the belief that Kelly is indeed going to have a different recruiting ceiling at LSU than he did at Notre Dame. That's literally the reason he left. Yeah. Like why else would he leave? You know, and I guess if you make more money than whatever, but you know, Notre Dame has challenges that can be overcome, but challenges that don't exist at all the teams they have to beat to win a national championship. So if you're a coach who, you know, some would say like Brian Kelly, I don't know what your opinion is on this, but did Brian Kelly reach the ceiling at Notre Dame? Yes. In your opinion? Yeah, absolutely. If he reached the ceiling at Notre Dame, in your opinion, then why stay? Like that's the same thing with Pat Fitzgerald and some of the other guys who have reached ceilings at their programs. You've reached the mountaintop and you have an opportunity to go do something that you've never done in your career before. And that's to go win a national title. And I think that it's a fact that it's easier to win a national championship at LSU than it is at, at Notre Dame. Why? LSU isn't a private Catholic school that alienates half of the recruits out there who don't want to be in that environment from the beginning of their recruitments. You can't control that right or wrong. Some players do not want to go in that environment. The academic standards are higher. The state of Indiana has no players in it. it, it it's just, it's the, the dorm situation. I think that the players live amongst the regular students. There's no like all in buy-in from the football program, the same way that you would get at a school that's football first. And those are part of the reason why Notre Dame is charming. Like, I can understand why somebody would want to go there. If I went to a Catholic high school and was really good at football, why wouldn't you want to go to a place that's legitimately different than everywhere else? If you've been to South Bend, it feels like college football was like born there. Like, I get the charm of it. But LSU doesn't have those crazy standards. They've got 10 top 100 players in the state of Louisiana every single year who just have assumed they're going to LSU since they were four years old. They play in a conference where they are forgiven for losing one game. And you can amass enough talent to rock the entire country. And you saw it all come together when Joe Burrow was there and Jamar Chase and all those guys. Like, when's the last time Notre Dame had a team that even came close to resembling it? Now, they've had good enough teams to run through their schedule and go undefeated. But what happens every single time they go up and they face one of the big boys that, that has signed four classes in a row with top 100 players to get their ass kicked? And I think that, like, any coach can can recognize that and want to do something different. So I understand that Brian Kelly's just not a likable person. Like if you like watch him, I just like, I don't, I don't know that I'd want to play for that man, but you also can't argue with the fact that he's a very good coach and seemed to ring out as much as he can out of his programs. And is now in a position where if he can adapt to the Southern lifestyle, like he has with his accent, then he oh, yeah. has a pretty good shot of, of doing something big there. Now, I don't know that I agree that Notre Dame could never be better. If you get the right person, in there, who's a very marketable, likable man, like Marcus Freeman, and you're seeing it with their class right now, they're on track to sign their best class in program history. You do that three or four times in a row, and then Notre Dame, it becomes a much more dangerous program. But totally understand why somebody would leave Notre Dame for LSU to try something new. I'm still of the belief that if um, fellow Buffalo Grove High School alum like myself, Tommy Zabukowski, had been able to stop Reggie Bush uh, had been able to stop Matt Liner rather and prevent the the Bush push. I still think Notre Dame has a little bit of a different fate in the BCS era, but 
that's neither here nor there. We yes, yes. But time. also, too, college football has changed dramatically since then. And that's the point. It's yes. like, that's the thing. I don't think people realize, like, winning a national championship in the BCS era was infinitely easier than it, yes. is, it is now. It's like you have to win a conference champion, or maybe not Notre Dame, but you have to win a conference championship game and then go beat two other top four teams back-to-back weeks in order to get that done after going undefeated or only losing one game in the regular season. Like, the, 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 the grind of that is so much harder than it used to be, and the teams are so much more lopsided than they used to be. You always had the haves and the have-nots in the sport, but like Notre Dame versus that uh, USC team when Leonard scored, the talent discrepancy between those two teams might have existed but it's nowhere near what it is when Notre Dame lines up on the same field as Bama. Now, like the, I, I think I, I remember the stat off the top of my head and it's, it's, don't quote me on it if, if it's not perfect, but I think 68 of the top 100 players last year in the, in the country went to like five schools. It's like five schools got like almost 70% of the best players in the country. It's like, what the hell do you think is going to happen if that keeps happening? So NIL, for instance, maybe if, if you know, you have riffs like you do with Saban and, and, and Jimbo, Maybe an, another team like Texas A&M will start competing for national championships, or maybe it'll open the door for a seventh team. But right now, it's like every single year you go into a college football season, there's only seven teams that are good enough to win the championship, and everybody else is playing for second. I got a few more things before I get you out of here. I know we got busy, busy day it is. Um, can we talk about the uh, the Ohio State tweet during the Clemson LSU oh, title? Oh, sure. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. What do you, what do you want to know? Okay. okay, so for those who don't know, um, in, in the middle of that title game, Ari tweeted... Not the middle, the first quarter. <laughs> but it's Because it's if it was in the middle, it would have it would have been way more ridiculous. In, in the, the midst end, of that game. It was before it became a blowout, yes. <laughs> okay, so in the first quarter of the Clemson LSU title game a couple years ago, Ari tweeted... Quote, the more I watch this game, the more it's clear that Ohio State was probably the best team in college football this year. End quote. I'm going to give you credit for not deleting that. How, uh, yeah, no. how close did you come to deleting that? No, honest? I mean, you got to own it, man. Like being a, a reporter or somebody who's a, a college football personality. Like I'm not paid to be right 100% of the time. And if you can't be wrong, then you're in the wrong business. True. And it's like, I've never been, I've never been somebody who, is afraid of being wrong. If I'm wrong, hey guys, I'm sorry. I messed up. You know? And then we move on. Like and it's the the people who are too arrogant to to own up to being wrong that I think are the problem. So, you know, you got to remember at that time I was covering Ohio State that year. And Ohio State's team in 2019 was the best Ohio State team I ever saw in 10 years on that beat and they had some really good teams. Better than 2014? Maybe. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I don't know. 2014, like there's a difference between better and great. Yeah. Like the 14 team was great because they actually went out and got it done and they had a ton of talent and, you know, Ezekiel Elliott and Cardale Jones and all those guys, Michael Thomas. I get it. But 2019's team did not have a weakness and they were veteran and Justin Fields was their quarterback. They had a lave. I mean, they, they were loaded and they lost to Clemson in a very close game that kind of a targeting penalty kind of messed them up a little bit. It was a bad call. So and if it's a good or bad call, whatever, like Ohio State lost a weird game that yeah. I think that if they played it back, they probably could have won if they played again. And then in, this, in, the, in the first quarter or first half of the LSU-Clemson game before LSU just went Death Star mode, it looked like LSU was struggling. And I thought that Ohio State was marketably better than, than Clemson was that year. So I posted that. Now, I should have waited as somebody who covers football, knowing that games change after a quarter or two. Um, but now I've kind of turned it into a bit now. And, you know, I don't know 
LSU was the best team in the country that year. Let's be honest. There it is. Yeah. I would have loved to watch them play Ohio State. Though. What was the final score of that game? If they of the LSU-Clemson game? No, the L- of the LSU-Ohio State game, that didn't happen. I'm sure LSU would have won. I think it could have been something like 45 to 31 or something, or, or 45 to th- I think it would have been a very entertaining game. But the way that LSU played that year, I think it would be an insult to one of the greatest offenses in, in, in history to pretend like Ohio State would have beaten them. I just would have loved to see that game play out because I do think Ohio State was better than the Clemson team they lost to. I think that's all perfectly fair. And I agree with you that that, that seeing the way that it started off, you're kind of like, ah, yeah, Clemson probably. Yeah, yeah. Here. But I got roasted. I have yeah. never been roasted like that in my entire <laughs> life on Twitter. And, I, and I've, been, I've been wrong and I've looked said some really stupid stuff in my day. That one, that one was, I I was getting it from other writers, uh, national writers. I was getting, I got buried. And now every time a a blowout's happening or whatever, I always, I don't know if you noticed that, but I always like, I've tweeted it like 15 times since. And people, it's funny because half the people get the joke and then other half are like, what the hell are you talking about? You were (laughs) such an idiot. Like, like even like, cause I, I tweeted it ridiculous times where it makes no sense. And the people who are not in on the joke, their minds explode. And it's kind of funny to see it play out. Um, A bowling against Bowling Green. (laughs) Yeah. 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 Well, it's like Ohio State's been, I think I tweeted it this year uh, during the national title game, like during the, the, the Bama Georgia game. I said, the more I watch this game, the more it's clear that Ohio State's (laughs) the best team in the country. And everyone's like, are you, what what are you talking? It's like, we're watching this heavyweight fight between two SEC powers and the guy, the team that got their doors blown off by Michigan. And people just go bonkers. It's hilarious. So, you know, I do have to, to be careful because I don't want people to actually think I'm an idiot, but I have to own that the best that I can. And hey, that night I was an idiot. What about this year? Um, what would you say if someone hypothetically talked themselves into Ohio State winning a national championship? And part of the reason being that the preseason number one in the post Matt Leiner era at USC has won a national championship once. It was 2017. I didn't know that's that. That's interesting. That's And I I didn't realize that until I looked it up because I'm like, well, Bama's got a decent chance of being the second preseason number one, second unanimous preseason number one in AP Bowl history, the other one being 2015 Ohio State. And I'm kind of thinking to myself, well, surely they're they're set up to to be able to win a national championship. But you kind of look at that and you're like, well, wait a minute. Does that mean that Alabama is actually not as big of a favorite as they should be? I have... That's my way of saying I and Georgia exists too. I think people forget yeah. about Georgia and it's just like, you know, they lost a lot of talent last year, but you have to remember that Georgia, every single year they recruit the way they've been recruiting is becoming Alabama. Yeah. And like, I don't think we've been conditioned to accept that yet. It's like, ah, oh, Georgia got theirs and Bama's going to return and Georgia's going to suck again for the next one. No, they're really, really good. Um, there are three teams in the country that have enough good players every single year, regardless of turnover to win a national title. And that's Ohio state. Georgia and Alabama. I think Ohio State's defense might suck again. And they spent a lot of money um, on a new coordinator who came in from Oklahoma State, Jim Knowles, to kind of fix that. And if they fix that, they have a chance of, of winning the t- national title. I think they're going to make the playoff if they can fix their defense because they've got C.J. Stroud, who I think will be the number one pick in the draft next year and enough receivers and line talent and running back talent to like score a ton of points. I think they might have the best offense in the country. But I'm way, 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 way far away from thinking they're one of they're one of the two best teams in the country right now. Interesting. Okay. Um, I I want to get you out of here on this. You you love the fillet of fish more than any yes. human being on the face of this earth. Maybe. A lot of people order it, by the way. Okay, sure. I'm just the only person that admits it. 
Yeah. That, okay. That's, that's all right. That's, that's perfectly fair. Um, make the case for why that's somehow better than the McChicken or literally anything else on the McDonald's menu. The Mc, <laughs> the McChicken literally is just a $1 piece of shit chicken sandwich that you could get at every other fast food restaurant. Oh, it's great. Like, it's just like, it's just, it's, it's fine, you know, like, but it's not, there's nothing different or special. I mean, they're all the same. If you go to Jack in the box and get the dollar chicken sandwich there, it's some weird, it's like some chicken patty. That's like lightly breaded. That's been in a freezer for six months that they, that you eat. And it's like, don't get me wrong. I'm a big freezer fast food junk eater. But like, fired I'm, Wendy's. Do you like, do you even like fried fish? Uh, I love fried fish, but okay. I, don't, I don't think you've ever had fish the filet fish. fish? Yes, I've had the filet fish like way back in the day. Probably. When's the last time you had one? High school. Dude, go get one and just try <laughs> it. Because like you're, you can't, you can't make fun of me for not liking it if you're, if your adult palate hasn't. Okay, had that's it. fair. That's fair. And I always challenge people to go get it when they make fun of me for it because I do understand that it sounds gross. Like, why would I order fish at a fast food restaurant? It's disgusting. Like, and it's not. It's a square. I get it, but it's legitimately delicious. If you're like, and my favorite thing in the world is fried fish. So maybe that's part of it, but like, it's really good. It's soft and it tastes fresh. And it's like, I don't think that ordering a fish sandwich at McDonald's is any more offensive than ordering at Arby's or Wendy's or any other place like that. So, and it's, it's small. It's very soft. It's delicious. And if you get a fresh one, like it's like it melts in your mouth and I just think it tastes amazing. So but I'm never going to hate other fast food items. Like I, I love fast food um, and maybe to my detriment, I got to, I got to stop eating it. But let me just, before you post this podcast or, or whenever you post this podcast, just go get one Okay. And, and let me know how it goes. All right. You I, might not like it, but the bun's different. If you're a, like the bun that they give you for the McDonald's for the filet fish is like soft and steamed and fresh. It's like, like that brioche? bun that they, it's the same. I think it's the same actual bun, but the bun that you have, you ever like go Google like filet fish bun. It looks like a skin treatment. It's like perfect. Oh, then if you get like the McChicken bun, it's like dry and flat. Like it's, okay, like a, it's soft and, and fresh. And like, just say, can I get a fresh filet fish sandwich with an extra slice of cheese? If you're into that and a soft bun, and then they'll give it to you. And it's the most amazing sandwich and fast food, in my opinion. You got to ask for the soft bun? No, no. But I want you to not get met because like quality control at these places isn't very good. So like okay. if you get an old one and you don't know it, like it, it might suck because sometimes I've, I've ordered it before and it's like, ah, oh, this one sucks. So I just want you to make sure that you okay. that you get the best experience. And then if you don't like it, then, hey, you know, we just don't like the same things. But the McChicken is like a throwaway sandwich that you could duplicate anywhere. The filet fish is a delicacy that cannot be duplicated at other places. Okay. Then, then I need you to do five hypothetical food. We're doing, we're doing a, a food matchup here. Five, you got to pick which one you would take. If I'm presenting, I'm putting them on the table for you. They're, they're, they're okay. recruiting hats and you got to be able to pick one. Popeye's chicken sandwich versus filet fish. filet fish Chick-fil-A spicy chicken or filet fish filet fish Oh, my God. In and out burger, filet fish. That's not even fair. <laughs> See, like, I love all those sandwiches, though. That's the thing. Like, no, and, like no. I don't order like a filet fish isn't even like the whole meal. It's so light and airy. Like I could eat 10 of them. <laughs> a lot of times if I go to McDonald's, like I'll get like a burger so that I'm full. And then get a filet fish on the side because you'll see if you order one of the sandwiches, it's like four bites and it's gone. They're not very big. Um, but like in and out has the most. uh the best hamburger and fast food without question, in my opinion. So like, I don't know, like you're like saying, what kid do you like more? Your, your firstborn or your second son? Like I only have one kid, but you know, hypothetically, um, 
if I had, to, if you like had to remove one thing from Earth, I think I would remove the In and Out Burger because I think you could duplicate the burger elsewhere, and you can't duplicate the first. Golly, oh my god, it's got a better war, is what you're saying, essentially. Yeah, okay. it's it's with one of those things where it's just like, could you get a really good burger at nine thousand other places? Sure. Can you get another fish sandwich that tastes that good? Probably not. Okay, two more. Burger King rodeo cheeseburger versus filet of fish. And I don't, I didn't even, I've never even eaten that. Oh God. You, that's what you need to go try. The rodeo cheeseburger at Burger King. Is that King the one has, with the bacon and all that? No, no, no. Barbecue sauce and onion rings. It's oh, that most, sounds pretty good. It's the most underrated non like advertised. But Burger King has the worst, King. has the worst burger patty out of all of them. Like Not the flame broiled. I think they're fine. Like I would eat one if it was in front of me, but like, I don't think it's the, like if you were to take the bun off of all the fast food burgers and just lay the burger patties on the table, the Burger King burger patty would be the most bland, flavorless one there is. Okay, that's fair. That's probably fair. All right, last one. But uh, I think, but I do, but I do think that if you if you did that, because Burger King has tremendous onion rings, so like do. there's potential there for sure. That's that's why you got to get it get it on the cheeseburger. That's that's the hack. This is why I need to go on a diet, dude. I'm too much of an <laughs> expert. I want everything to taste like it's disgusting. A T-bone steak off the grill or filet fish, like a like a like a five star restaurant. No, like a, a neighborhood barbecue. Like like a, like a Texas Roadhouse type place. No, 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 no. Like a neighborhood barbecue. <laughs> like somebody's oh, somebody's backyard. making it filet yeah, fish. Oh my god! <laughs> but like, if you said like if you said like a a nice steak at like Mastro's, I would take the steak. Okay, at least I'll take that. Yeah, like I don't like, want to sound like a psychopath, but like if you're <laughs> some asshole grilling in his front lawn, like in in New Balance tennis shoes and jean shorts, like give me the filet fish. Even if it's off the Traeger. Oh, my dad has a Traeger. It's pretty good. Um, I probably like I, I don't really eat steak that often though. Because you like like I'll fish. eat it at a nice steakhouse. Like I really enjoy that, but like I I've never like make it at home. All right, because I'm not much of a man. You'll learn this about me if we become closer <laughs> friends. I don't like doing anything that a normal man would do, like mow their lawn or, or drink beer in the shower or cook their own T-bone steak in, in a frying pan on their, t- you know, two out of those three. Um, yeah. Well, actually a beer in the shower is nice, but I, I don't do it very often. Yeah. It's, it's right time and place. Can't be an every yeah. weekend type thing. Otherwise I'm, I'm questioning. You yes. Yes. For sure. Yeah. All right. This has been great, man. Really appreciate the time. We'll talk soon. Yeah. No problem, buddy. Anytime. What's my destiny, mom? You're going to have to figure that out for yourself. Life is a box of chocolates for us. You never know what you're going to get. Figuring out today, we're talking grudges. <laughs> Figured, you know, got to talk at least a little bit about grudges that we've had in our lives. We were originally going to do another idea that you have that we're going to save for next week. Got to go with the topical opportunities when we get them mm-hmm. and figuring it out. Um, I, in my opinion, a grudge, and maybe you'll disagree with this, a grudge has to be mutual and exes shouldn't really count. It's kind of implied, yep. right? That's a really okay. good, but two very good rules on that. Because there's no nothing weirder than when somebody has beef with you than you don't have with them. And you find yes. it out later and you're like, why do you have beef with me? I don't get this. Yeah, that's, that's not a grudge. It's just not liking someone. Right, yeah. Those, those are two <laughs> different things. And having a, a, a relationship that, that turns sour with an ex, that's its own separate category, in my opinion. Right. Common understanding between two people that there's bad blood, can't just be that you don't like someone. That's why I don't think I have any active grudges. I have people that I don't like. I have people who don't like me. I'm team no enemies. 
but I wouldn't say that I have grudges mm -hmm. necessarily. I, I've ruffled some feathers, definitely. I, I <laughs> had a I, feather ruffler. <laughs> definitely, for sure. Um, I, I had a pretty active grudge in college, actually. Um, kind of a, it was a double whammy. Actually, you know what? It was a triple whammy. We, this this guy, we worked together. We were in the same fraternity. Mm -hmm. He uh, he might deny this, but I'm pretty sure that we were into the same girl. That girl was Lauren, aka my wife. Sounds like he How won like this grudge. Yeah. Yes, yes, very much. Um, only slightly kidding on that. I would say that we're totally fine now. We don't necessarily text often or, or anything like that. Maybe the occasional message on Twitter or something like that. It was one of those things though that were back in the day in college, competitive thing after we were initially friends, applied for the same positions on the student newspaper. We were just wired very differently. Mm -hmm. Will, you kind of understand like how I'm wired and <laughs> the type of person that could kind of frustrate me in some of those types of settings. Yes. You get that. Yes, I do. And I try every day to not be that person because I know exactly who that person is. <laughs> they're very, you're the person that it's like, you know, you, you, you live by a code is the best way I can explain it. And you treat people fairly. And it's like, if someone just doesn't understand the society that we all kind of live in, those people rub you the wrong way. Yeah, look, I'm not sitting out here trying to be Kobe, all right? I'm not, right. I'm not sitting there just like blasting teammates left and right. But at, at, the, at the same time, you know, I, I've been, I, I realized when I got into a professional workplace like that, that's just kind of the way I am. And if I don't feel like people are pulling their weight necessarily, and it's impacting what I'm trying to do, then, then it frustrates me and it, it gets under my skin in a way that it, maybe it doesn't for a lot of people listening to this. But with, with this guy in college, it, it was more of a passive aggressive thing than anything confrontational. Never really got into any like shouting match or anything like that. It was just kind of a mutual understanding over time <laughs> that we really did not like each other. Um, both sports editors on student newspaper, by the end of the semester though, I did not want to talk to him. I don't think he wanted to talk to me. Mm -hmm. I, I just felt like he never did his job and I was always left doing all the work after <laughs> I would take over at night. That sucked. Mm -hmm. And it was just, and he just knew that I was gonna, that I was gonna like be, take on that role because it, it would irk me to no end if something wasn't done. And then you're like, all right, well, what are, what are, what are we doing here if that's the expectation? So he probably thought I was too serious, too work focused, and I might have been to a certain extent, but that, that just, it created friction constantly. It was the closest thing probably to a full-blown grudge that I've had, though it was different than having some sort of falling out with someone where we were like best friends and then we stopped talking all of a sudden. Nothing like that. Mm -hmm. Will, what about you? Any grudges? <laughs> so, from the beginning of you texting me this, I've been laughing about it. It's just a thing I've, I've never thought about personally for me. Um, so I'm a person that like, I have a little bit of MJ element in me where I try to find people who doubt me, right? That's always how I've been. I, I need a little bit of a carrot, a little bit of a stick to get me moving, get me doing the things I do. And especially in kind of the field that I'm in, I'm in a creative field. And a lot of it for me has always been, I'm sure to say this. So there are a couple of things that Jimbo th said that I actually really like hit home for me. Number one, we talked about with, you know, being in the South, my daddy raised me this certain way, right? So when you start to, you know, exactly what you just said, if you're a fundamentally different person at your core than someone, if you have this set of values and someone doesn't share those set of values and they make it apparent, not like politically or something like that, but it's like, for me, I've always seen myself as like a foxhole guy. I've always seen myself as, if you put the work in and show me you're gonna be a good friend, I'm never gonna double cross you, I'm never gonna do that type of stuff. And so when someone doesn't 
hold up their end of that bargain, that's an easy way to, you know, get on my bad side. And then something else that Jimbo said, I feel like is, uh, well, he said, when someone shows you who they are, believe them, right? And that's another thing that for me, it's like, you know, it always kind of comes from either I've been solid for someone and they haven't been solid for me, or there's someone like you said that has a workplace thing where it's a rivalry like that. But I've always said, man, it's very easy to be my friend and very hard to be my enemy. Um, if you want to kind of fly too close to the sun and pick me as your rival, I'm always gonna be the guy who is going to take it that extra mile because I thrive in competition. However, if at any point someone has said to me, hey, you know, I, uh, I'm sorry, X, Y, and Z, let's bury the hatchet. I'm usually like, cool, no big deal. Unless it's like something deep within my honor that, th that has been done to me. And so that's, that's kind of the thing, man. It's, it's very, I think a lot of it, like the Jimbo Saban thing comes from a healthy rivalry. Like we think about grudges, you know what I think of is uh, Dinkelberg from the Fairly Odd Parents. You ever watch Fairly Odd Parents? Well, this is one of those things where I'm reminded <laughs> how much younger you are than me. And I'll have these moments where you'll refer, and I, I guess SpongeBob isn't the best example of this, but- That show's been on um, for 20 years. <laughs> it's been on for 20 years, it has been. But I, I, I truly just missed that that time. And that, that like, right right at that specific age, we've, we've talked about this before. Fairly Odd Parents, another one of those things where th that missed me by like, uh, probably like three or four years. Right, so Timmy's dad, right, had this neighbor named Dinkelberg, who was a one-sided beef. He would, okay. Dinkelberg was out there just waving at him, how's it going, you know, Turner or whatever, and he would just be like, Dinkelberg, and he would just be furious, and they like got a new car or whatever. So a lot of it's that, and, and, and that's kind of my thing is that, you know, I've, I'm often quick to forgive people, but like Jimbo said, once someone shows you their true colors, it's hard for me once I have beef with somebody to fully reclaim them because I always say that you're always your truest self whenever things don't go your way. That's another thing I brought up last time. So whenever somebody, you know, if I'm cool, I'm cool, I'm cool, and then somebody, you know, zags on me real quick, it's like, we're not ever gonna go back to being that level of cool if I stay solid for you because I know that when the chips are down, you're gonna do that. And that's a gear that some people have and I know that like, you know, I, I can kind of tell it pretty quickly in people. Like you're a person who's wired that very same way where it's like you're very loyal to people and you like hold people to this high standard. So that's that's my thing on grudges. I think that grudges you're told, you know, are kind of a um, uh, immature thing. But I would say, especially when you're at the top of a profession, like Jimbo and Saban are, and especially if you hold yourself to like some type of an honor code or how you do things, it's hard to not get into it with people who kind of fly in the face of that is the best yeah. way to explain it. Yeah, I I'm a Hufflepuff. Of course you're a Hufflepuff. <laughs> Brittany's a Hufflepuff yeah. and she's, I always say, oh, Cedric Dickory is a great Hufflepuff. There's nothing wrong with being a Hufflepuff. Can you guess my Harry Potter house? Uh, I'm gonna say you're a Ravenclaw. Oh gosh, man, come on, bro. Slytherin, I am the most apex Slytherin guy of all no. time. No, 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 I disagree. I, we, we'll get into that another time. We'll save that, that off. Okay. Some people, some people just turn off the podcast hearing us reference that. No, I'm Harry Potter, myself. again, 20 years. Get, if you don't like Harry Potter, at least enjoy the rides. That's all I gotta say. Good point, the rides are tremendous. Hagrid's ride at uh, Universal, the new one, is tremendous. Get to it. All right, Facebook group. Got a lot of good responses here. Don't know, we're not gonna be able to get to all of these, I, I promise you, because we got a couple of things that we want. People to in the South hold grudges, you're telling me? Yeah. <laughs> they're, really, they're really in on this topic? That's shocking. Yeah, all these are either really, really short or really, really long and super in depth. And some of these, I don't want to put people on blast to say, because some of y'all got real personal with this, so we might have to leave a couple of details out here. Your um, great, great pig stealing grandpa. We've been holding yes. the crush for 200 years. We don't want him to listen to this. 
Nick Ruark says, I have a grudge against Reggie Miller that stems from a Twitter fight we had several years ago. <laughs> does Reggie acknowledge the grudge? He probably does. He's the king of pushing off, so, mm -hmm. I mean, you know. I'm not allowed to say that to Lauren, by the way. That's a, that, that's a for Soundproof wall. <laughs> yeah, uh, that's, we, we can't go down that road. That's, that's her, her childhood favorite, favorite athlete. Well, Rick Smith, but besides him, yeah. I've been forbidden from saying anything negative against Reggie Miller. Doesn't surprise me, doesn't surprise me. That seems very, very Reggie Miller-like to get into a tiff and to probably, he probably remembers. He probably remembers you, Nick. I don't want to say that he doesn't. He definitely does. Who are we kidding here? Okay, this one's, this is one of those really, really long ones, but the intro is so good that I promise you'll be hooked. <laughs> Tristan Smith. I don't have any grudges except with my mother and Jim McElwain. <laughs> <laughs> I guess I could tell you something I'd never forgive though. My ex-girlfriend, um, and again, girlfriend grudges in my opinion should be separate, but this is, this is interesting. Um, he says, my ex-girlfriend and we dated for uh, a little more than a year, lied to me about still being married. Oh. I was 20 and I met this girl a couple years before by doing some work for her on her farm. Um, I've heard, I've heard the song. This is, this is just a country song. I was about to say. <laughs> anyway. Yeah. She needs some help a, on the farm. A farm Somebody man. with a truck. That's like two you, strong arms. Yeah. Um, you, you play, it was like Stacy's mom kind of, but farm themed. Just like she was just watching you out there working on the field. Yep, exactly. Uh, crazy, crazy thing about this is I tried to pick up her sister in high school, so there's a history already. Uh, hit fast forward two years later, I officiate a wedding that she's a part of, we hit it off, and about a month after the wedding we're dating, she tells me about her ex and how awful he was. Uh, she said they were separated legally and showed me all these papers and stuff about their marriage being over. Anyway, after a year of me literally sneaking through the woods, being shot at, hiding in closets, and having an entire car vandalized and replaced, that's all? Uh, she tells me that they're not actually divorced and they're taking a break and she wanted to try and work it out. Um, I mean, for Pete's sake, I was about to propose. Turns out they weren't getting jiggy. They weren't getting jiggy with it, and hadn't been in a decade. So for a year, she was able to let out her uh, her tension with me, and then moved on with an actual divorce and dated a new guy. Completely lied to my face twice, and then used me for an entire year while being actively married, adopting two children, and trying to advance her life. Uh, that was a wild ride. That had probably six different places that I didn't thought it would, that I didn't think it would go. Kyler is so shocked that he's just used bad grammar for the first time in our friendship. <laughs> Buddy, I, if she shows you the papers, I don't, I don't know what else you can do at that point. You can't say I, I need more proof than that. If if you if you ask for any more proof or you get any more proof, you're just a stalker and you're following her around and. That's, that's really bad, obviously. Different category of grudge, in my opinion, this is. This is like a nuclear grudge. I don't know, there's no repairing anything like this, though. This is, this this probably shouldn't even be in this discussion. We should probably just do a figuring out about exes, and then Tristan, you could retell this entire Please. story. <laughs> oh, and exes, that would get violent. That would be, uh, Jay Woody would have a long day at the office. Um, yeah. Anyway, I'll say this, thank you for sharing the story. That's wild. It always sucks <laughs> to find out that you're kind of the other guy. I'm sure that's happened to plenty of people in the Facebook group, but that's, that's tough. I would say um, my only thing, I'm not at all saying this is your fault. Have you considered moving? 
Because it feels yeah. like you keep you know? running into like three people and one of two of them have shot at you. So at that point, I would probably be like, okay, this is not the place for me. Everyone here is crazy. I'm Audi. I don't know if like, I don't know, I don't know if he lives in Tennessee. I know he's a big Tennessee fan, but like, maybe just pick a different part of Tennessee and lay low for a minute. There's a lot of land in these here United States to pick from, <laughs> you know? A lot of work, from, work remotely opportunities available to you. You know, just, just a thought, just my, my words, whatever. Do what you're going to do. Drew Page says, I hold a grudge against my father-in-law. Ooh, that's interesting. He didn't come to our wedding because of something that had to do with me and blamed my wife for it and said uh, that, she, that she was depriving him of an important day. There's no <laughs> love lost there. And also the band trapped because they keep locking me on all social media. I don't know that the, the, the Reggie Millers, the trapped of the world can acknowledge this grudge. It might just be- Oh, dude, have you ever seen Trap social media? They're insane. We, I, I'm having deja vu. We've talked about yes. this before. Yes. yes, This is where it's great that we have totally different interests because I can give you a whole, they're insane. And the guy who's the front man of the band runs their Twitter and all their social media and actively fights with people every day of his life. So I'm sure if you talk to that psychopath or like, you know, Drew Page, like Gnarls Barkley or whatever on Twitter, he'd be like, yeah, I hate him. Big grudge guy. Yep. Okay. He's Yeah, he's the poster boy for grudges, exactly. Very fun, productive way to spend time, I guess. It sucks about the father-in-law, though. That, that, that's, a, that's one of those things that if you could snap your fingers and change, I'm, I'm sure you would. Um, even though you've probably gotten to this point where you've accepted, not going to be a part of your life. But when it's, when it's family and that grudge exists, I, I subscribe to the theory of life is too short for family grudges that is easier for me to say, having not been a part of one where there's all this detailed history. My dad's side of the family, it was divided basically. And as is the case with, I'm sure a lot of people listening to this, when uh, the, the father figure of you know, a family with a lot of kids or something like that, when, when they die, and then it creates all this friction and all this bad blood with just the entire fallout. Sometimes wills get messy and, and all these different things. So I, I watch my dad's side of the family go through that and it's just not, not an ideal scenario at all because um, it's so easy for me on the outside to say, oh, just, just fix it, life's too short. But there are just hurt feelings and some of those relationships and I saw it really play out in kind of a, like a painful way with some of my dad's siblings. But just one of those things that you're just like, man, this is, it sucks that life had to turn out this way because mm -hmm. if you get to go through once with one family and whatnot, that's just, Man, it just kind of puts a damper on things. So, Drew, sorry that you got to deal with that, man. We've got a couple more here to get to. Um, oh man, Zachary Ward in this one's. Whew, okay, we, this one's this one's too long for. We 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 can't do like like six long ones. Um, but but thank you for contributing. Definitely appreciate that. Uh, Jonathan Mason, this one's interesting. <laughs> <laughs> we keep thinking these stories cannot get better, and yes, this. This line, the starter, very good. The former Tennessee Speaker of the House paid for several negative attack ads against me when I ran for office in 2018. <laughs> I have certainly had some ill will towards him, but he was voted out of the speakership in 2019 after a scandal and the FBI raided his office and home in January of 2021. He'll likely face federal wire fraud charges. It is not often that we get to see people get what they deserve. <laughs> also, I hate it when people use literally incorrectly. He means the word literally. Um, I'm 6'6 and literally won't fit into anyone's pocket. And that makes sense because the picture that he attached 
is the attack ad wherein um, it says Jonathan Mason literally in the pocket of big insurance companies. <laughs> and it's this image that um, will, I'm just gonna say this is very entry level Photoshop we're talking here. This uh, is in the running for my favorite comment ever. There's a visual medium aspect to this. If you guys aren't on the Facebook group, join it just for this. Uh, it's this guy who looks very similar to his profile picture, minus a beard, and he is being photoshopped being inserted into the coat pocket of another stock photo gentleman. But the gentleman is black and white, and he is in color. And uh, it, it, it does have a grammatical error. It says he's literally in the pocket of big, big insurance companies. And again, he literally would not fit in that pocket. So say what you will of him, that's an incorrect ad from the job. Jeez, that's crazy. Okay, um, <laughs> let's let's end with this one. I'm gonna leave the oh, name out of this. Hold on, really quick. It. That right there shows why I, I couldn't go into politics because that would make me crack. If someone put was photoshopping <laughs> me into that and saying stuff about my character and my family, it would be Jimbo Fisher in every conference. So, props to you Will for you? dealing with that. Well, you would be great at the Photoshop elements of politics. I actually, I would be a machine if I was a politician. <laughs> I would just you have would better memes. That. I wouldn't, I yes. wouldn't stay silent. I would just be like, well, guess I'm, this is what I'm doing today. I feel like we don't know his platform, but he totally kills it with his ads. <laughs> it's hard not to love this guy. It'd be it's like Wendy's. It's like it's a food good. I don't know. His social media is yeah. fire though. <laughs> yeah, really good. That's all that matters. Um, yeah, like I said, I'm gonna leave the name out of this one. Um, Let's see, okay, how far do we wanna go with this? <laughs> I unfortunately have a drug addict brother-in-law, uh, was once a good friend, that stole roughly $7,000 of tools and equipment from me while I was attending his cousin's wedding. Uh, my children will never know he exists. He's just an all-around bad person, regardless of addiction. Yikes. Um, if somebody wrongs you in, in a pretty obvious way like that, how do you how do you how do you ever overcome that? I I have no experience whatsoever being in a situation like that where you feel truly wronged and you're like no because it's not like that person's gonna say ah you got me I'm gonna pay you back right right that that's never the way something like that ends <clears throat> a person does something like that knowing probably full well this is a relationship that I'm okay losing and that that in itself kind of sucks. And that kind of tells you what you need to know about that relationship. But uh, I'd say that's a, that'd be a tough pill to have to swallow, to have to just be like, hey, you gotta, you gotta forgive this person. You gotta do what you can. Um, mm, yeah, that would be, uh, that'd be a tough one to have to, and I, I understand like the element of like not wanting to, to explain that to your kids and go down that road as well. Because then even if you do invite that person back into your life, what are you inviting and all these different things that you have to explain to them. So yeah, some of these situations it's like, well, maybe you don't hold a grudge, but you just don't hold animosity to mm -hmm. them. Um, but yeah, that's a, that's, that's a brutal one. Yeah, a lot of extreme examples yeah. that we had today. I, I think the family element of it is really something, like you talked about it with like patriarch of a family dying and like, like Drew touched on this as well. It's like, whenever you get like someone that's has to be close to you and you have identified that they are not worth being close to, that's yeah. the worst. Because it's one thing to cut off, like you said, exes don't even count. We can just toss them out of our lives and, and just laugh about it with our boys. Friends is always, I think, a little bit harder because um, it's like, like I said, you know, you trust this person, whatever, da, da, da. Once you get into the family category where it's like every family means something totally different to every single person. Like for me, yes. I'm an only child. I love my mom. I've talked about my dad enough on here. <laughs> so my concept of family is very like, not like most people's. Brittany's family is like a, a 
fortress. Like her family defends each other tooth and nail, da da da. And every family is different. Some families, you know what I'm saying? If you are having beef with, you know, a brother-in-law or in both of these cases have been the wife's family, which I don't, yeah. you know, luckily I've been cool with everyone you said you as you have as well. Um, but yeah, it's, it's always tough because people, when people start to use that connection against you or against other people, it's one of the worst things in the world. When it's like, oh, I have this that I've done, yet I'm part of your family, so you must forgive me. And it's like, actually, I mustn't. <laughs> there is no, I must, I must, there's nothing I have to do ever in my life. And so, but that's the thing. Some families will just keep going through cycles where it's like, oh, well, you know, this guy kind of stinks. So that's the best you can do is either decide to cut that person out, which I have people like that, or decide to give people very low expectations and they never disappoint you, which I've done that as well. Because if you have to be with that person, sometimes it's better to just say, you know, if you got up and got out of bed this morning, that is better than I thought you would do. So if you try to scam me again, I'm just gonna go, yep, you're a scammer. What do I expect? <laughs> you're absolutely right about that. Uh, let's end with a new segment, something that will, this is, this is your baby, your brainchild, an idea that you tossed to me that I think is a great idea, something that we can continue into the season. Do you want to explain what it is and kind of what, what the parameters of this are? Yes. So we're talking lads of the week. So I always often identify people as just what a lad on this podcast, right? Thought I'd add a little bit of structure to that. You know, what is lad behavior? Ultimately, you know, it's just being a great locker room guy, being a great guy you want to be around, being a foxhole guy, maybe not the best player in the team, but just just an overall positive impact. So first of all, we'll talk about a boy, Emery Picker from the Facebook group, shout out to him, went to Savannah this weekend. He, you know, gave us a ride to this concert, let us hang on in his boat, you know, offered us Dang. pretty much everything we would want. So that's, you know, just honorary lad of the week for Emery. Uh, just can't say thank, thank you enough to all the people in this Facebook group, Drew, Emery, all the people I've met in real life and that, that I have relationships with outside of this and the support I've gotten from you guys been awesome that's 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 cool to hear mm -hmm. uh, emery's emery's always great about reaching out and doing stuff like that um a, a very uh worthy honorary first uh lad of the week and his wife kelsey as well uh lads, lads yes, can kelsey be, as well yeah she's also she's yes. a lad of the week yes lads can be male female yes. doesn't matter state of mind doesn't know gender. It's a state of mind. Exactly. Um, another, I, I have one that I wanted to shout out, uh, Dustin Judy, who if, if you read Saturday Down South content or you, you just kind of follow the company, the brand as well, you've probably seen him maybe interacting with Marler or something on social media mm -hmm. or whatever. Um, Dustin, for the last <clears throat> six years, has been working on our Big Ten site, Saturday Tradition. And he was actually, when I came down to Florida and initially was the, the first and only writer for Saturday Tradition to launch the site that first year. Dustin was the first person that I hired and brought on board back in 2016. And he has just been immensely important to our company. And he announced uh, on social media that he's, he's leaving our company and he's gonna go kind of in a little bit of a different path. He's still gonna be doing some writing. I'll kind of let him share the details of, of what's going into all that. But he's just been so important to, to our company and his loyalty, definite Hufflepuff for sure. 100% through and through. Yep. Um, but Dustin's one of those people that has just kind of like always been like put his head down and been able to like work his tail off and improved so much and was such an immense uh, piece of what we were trying to do on Saturday Tradition. And he's somebody that's going to be very, very missed on that side of things. So uh, if you follow Dustin on social media or if you don't or something like that, and uh, give him a shout out or whatever. And his next his next job, which I was able to talk to him about, um, we, we went to Top Golf the other day actually because he was in town. Um, you're probably going to want to follow him as well with what he's doing. So uh, Dustin's got some big, big things ahead. So really, really happy to to, to see what's what's next for him. Another great uh, great selection for for lad of the week. 
Yeah, so, and he's a guy I definitely follow him on Twitter, you know, regardless of his next move, because Apex dad jokes, just a good good dude, brings a lot of energy to Twitter. Um, so, our official, official lad of the week is um, <laughs> Suns forward Mikael Bridges. So, Mikael Bridges, uh, when I talk about, you know, what's a lad, right? So, <laughs> the Suns obviously got blown out in seven games against the Mavericks, right? Um, and, and it, well, in game seven, they got blown out. Totally just laid an egg, laid a stinker. And, you know, CP3, Aiton, Booker, those guys are the leaders of your team. Those are the guys you want to sit in there, face the questions, you know, do all that stuff. Mikael Bridges, no. He's the lad of the team. He's the floor raiser. What he did was he posted about a 10-picture carousel on Instagram. And then the last picture is their team photo for the year. And in the background, it has, like, the, the practice court score. And it says home 64, guest 18. And he tagged the Mavericks in that massive winning score. <laughs> wow. So it's like he did like the hey thank you post like oh here are my cool teammates and then he was like shout out the Mavs for just whooping us and I love that type That's of energy. <laughs> it's like hey you know at the end of the day this is CP's team this is Booker's team I'm here to bring happiness and energy and say you know I got a little bit of a sense of humor I'm a millionaire life is still good he's gonna get himself into a max contract based on he played his butt off this postseason so he handled his business he was a positive guy on and off the floor and now he can just go into this offseason and be like you know what boys it's all jokes our lives aren't that bad. Lads know their roles yep. through and through. That's what they do. Love it. We'll be doing a, a lot of lads of the week. We'll, we can definitely, like I said, continue that into the season. And I think that should be, if it's not a weekly segment, it's close to it. Just kind of whenever you think of it. Cool. We'll, we'll add this in at the end. Um, if you have not, leave us a five-star review. Join the Facebook group, Saturday Night South Podcast on Facebook. Here in Red on Air with Figure It Out or Bold and Brush. Thanks, guys. Talk soon.